in the shower, like my mum would say, Bond, if you can't sing proper songs, shut up. You know, don't sing this rock and roll garbage. You know? And now, of course, she loves it very much, you know? When did you meet the other boys of the band? Uh, I used to work for the band. Well, I used to work for an agency in, uh, in South Australia. And I was a chauffeur. And I used to drive the band around from hotel to the gig, back to the hotel, you know? And, uh, and these guys were looking for a singer. Yeah. And I said, I can sing. <laughs> so they give me a tryout, and I got the job. Ron, the other boys of the band say that you're great, but um, a little special. You know what they mean by that? I'm a special drunkard. I drink too much. What do you Bon Scott brought to the very young ACDC uh, a huge dose of professionalism. He was an amazing singer, that much is clear, but he's also quite a few years older than the, the two young brothers. Um, he'd had plenty of experience in previous bands. He'd actually had some success, especially in Australia, with bands that he'd been in. But he was a superb frontman. He was absolutely dynamic. He would just make the stage his own. He knew exactly what he was doing. He had this huge voice, uh, kind of like a more aggressive version of Robert Plant, really. He had that, you could hit those high notes, but in a much more guttural way, um, particularly live. You know, he could really turn it on live. I mean, there's this chap. He's got his uh, tight denim jeans on with his uh, stick of broccoli down the front. He's got tattoos up his arms, big hairy chest, which, you know, the ladies liked in the 70s, and um, a very cheeky kind of nodal smile and a look in the eye. And uh, ultimately, he was a very good frontman. I mean, he had all the uh, makings of uh, somebody that your parents wouldn't like you. So Angus initially would, would be uh, rehearsing with ACDC, still wearing his school uniform. School uniform is ludicrous. I mean, in, in rock and roll terms, anybody wearing school uniform is ludicrous. Rock and roll is meant to be about rebellion. It's not meant to be about, you know, wearing your school uniform. But then they tweaked it anyway. I mean, look at the Highway to Hell album cover. That's got, you know, this. it's a devil. You know, he's got his little devil horns on. He's holding his, his tail in his school uniform. It's kind of like, it's exciting. It is. However, their world was shattered on February the 20th, 1980, when Bon Scott suddenly died. Official reports stated that he'd drunk himself to death, but some uncertainty still surrounds the tragic events to this day. Bon Scott died under the, the mysterious, dubious circumstances of too much alcohol, thrown in a car to uh, sleep it off, and uh, ultimately died on his own vomit. Um, and then somebody found him in the morning. Um, it's very sad, very tragic. Almost expected for somebody who had such a hedonistic rock and roll lifestyle, you know. Not only was Johnson's first album with ACDC a classic for the band, Back in Black went on to be recognised as one of the finest rock albums ever released. This album ushered ACDC into their commercial peak, the early 1980s, which saw them tour and record as one of the biggest bands on the planet. If you were to only be able to buy one ACDC album, Back in Black would definitely be the one to buy. It's quintessential, diamond-studded ACDC. The remarkable thing about Back in Black, and there are so many remarkable things about it, 
Uh, first and foremost, it's incredible sales figures. Last year, the album was certified to have sold 21 million copies in the United States alone. And it has been said that it has sold a total of 42 million copies worldwide, which actually makes it not merely the biggest rock album of all time, but the second biggest album of all time, second only to Michael Jackson's Thriller. Uh, it is almost impossible to believe, but... It is almost impossible to believe, but here we are, episode 34. This one is called Highway to Hell versus Back in Black, and we'll get into uh, what that means uh, beyond the obvious in a second here. But first, a reminder of the CFX uh, conceit. Um, first of all, by the way, I'm Jeff, and that's Slip. Say hi, Slip. Hey. And the conceit of CFX, of course, is where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera music today, movies, TV, books, uh, other pieces of culture that we've staged, screen, you name it, and uh, examine the context, the time that they came out, what's happened since, and our take on the future valuation in terms of a fake stock market kind of thing, should you go long, short, or stay neutral. So that's what we do here. And let's talk about today's episode and how it's a little bit different. So, Slip, why don't you explain what we're going to do here today? Yeah, so this is an idea Jeff came up with, which was kind of an album war idea. You know, let's each pick an album that's our favorite album and, and kind of go to bat for it. And I think the reason to do this is, you know, there's so many, like we did with Rumors. I mean, it's so obvious that Rumors is it stands the test of time. There's no really real debate. I think you'd have to be a true contrarian to say that rumors doesn't stand the test of time. So the whole CFX conceit, it, it, it has to be tweaked a bit for these kind of albums. And I think uh, these two albums too, Highway to Hell and Back in Black, I mean, you heard the clips at the beginning, right? Back in Black's the second biggest selling album of all time. It's actually, actually up to 50 million now. So it's like... Um, and, and I'll talk about that a little bit because I've kind of had some incorrect statements in the past on this show about what the biggest selling album is. It is Thriller still at 70 plus million. But back in black, it, it's just not what you would think of <laughs> when you when you think of like, OK, what's after Thriller? You're probably thinking something like Mariah Carey or something, right. you know, something much more mainstream. But back in black is is second. Right. And and or Dark Side of the Moon, which is like. I don't know. It's in the top 10, but you know, our rumors there in the top 10, but yeah, back in black is number two and then highway to hell, which, you know, was the peak of their work with Bon Scott and which really paved the way for back in black. So that was interesting. So I think this, this is something we're going to continue to do, but I think this was Jeff through these two. I think this is like the best one right off the bat because these two albums are it's really hard for me. You know, I, I, I agreed to do back in black, but I'm not a hundred percent sure it's actually better. You know, I'm, I, I love Bond Scott and I love highway to hell just as much. So it's, it's really kind of the worst choice in a way, because it's like, to me, it's like a soapy's choice. Yeah. Like I throw my, my baby highway to hell, out, you know, Fire. I give up my, my highway to hell to, to, to take back in black or I take, you know, uh, I take, you know, Jeff gives up back in black to take highway to hell. It's, I, it's, I feel the same way. I, I yeah, mean, it, I, I love both these albums and, you know, one, one of the things that one of the reasons why I think we're going to continue on with this concept too, is there's a lot of bands that slip and I are both violently in agreement that we love. And it's like really hard to, you, you know, say, or an album that we both love. And to, to your point about rumors is like, we're not going to sit there and just like make up a fake, Oh, well, I hate this album, you know, just to do some stupid little stunt like, you know, 
that's not what we're about here at, at CFX. We're all about keeping it real, as you know. So this is just a way where we both love. I, I mean, just like you said, I love Back in Black too. I love Highway to Hell. It is a Sophie's choice. So it's just a way for us to kind of tackle this. And we're not even sure where we stand on this at the end of the day too, right? Right. And I think the other cool thing about this choice uh, of, of albums and band, um, obviously we were going to do ACDC eventually. We're both huge fans. They're both, as you'll see from our personal histories, it's it's kind of like the Motley Crue episode where there's, there's a lot, you know? And um, just because they were so huge and we just grew up around this time. But the other thing that's really cool about these two albums is they tell a story, yeah. you know? I mean, they have this incredible story of, you know, the band just peaking with their singer in, in their classic lineup and then him dying tragically and then them turning it around and picking up the pieces, making an album that is dedicated to him and it becoming massive with a new singer who's probably, you know, arguably the best replacement singer of all time. You know, someone who who and he has his own Rocky story, right? There's a, there's incredible stories here of this band and, you know, how this whole event happened and this whole story of these two albums. So we're going to go deeply into that. Um, we're going to do our usual thing where we go into our personal histories. We do the zeitgeist. Then we're going to do a history of ACDC up until that point, And then we're going to split off so that Jeff is going to go into highway to hell, right? He's advocating for highway to hell. Uh, he's going to go into the details on that, the recording and everything, his full eval, go through all the songs, et cetera. Then I'm going to pick it up. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the death of Bon Scott in between the two albums. And then I'm going to pick it up and go into a little bit of Brian Johnson's background and, you know, the recording of, of Back in Black and my whole eval. And then we'll just do a quick overview of the history after. Because I think the history after is interesting because it kind of poses the question of, you know, if ACDC are kind of doing the same kind of thing on all these albums, what makes the the good stuff so good and the other stuff so mediocre? Yeah. You know, the, the stuff that followed. It's really interesting to me, like what makes for a great ACDC song? Because I think, you know, these two albums, uh, it's hard to argue that they're not the peak of the band. So that's kind of what I wanted to say as, as an intro. But I think... Um, you know, if you want to say anything else, Jeff, cool. Otherwise, you can just go into your personal history because that's the next thing we're going to do. Yeah, I'll just say at the end, we'll have uh, some commentary on on this battle from a, a guest uh, uh, on the show. So uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned there. Um, all right. So personal history uh, with, with ACDC. I really don't remember the chronological history of what albums I had and in what order and when. I know that I got a bunch of ACDC albums, including the two we're talking about here and prior ACDC albums, pretty much all of them that were available on that infamous tape collection I got from my cousin that we've talked about in, pre in previous episodes. I do remember fifth grade and hearing Big Balls and that being the hit of like when I was in fifth grade. And of course, that album, uh, Dirty Deeds, I remember the cover of that album uh, for sure. I remember a few of the other songs off that album, um, like Rocker and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, and of course, the song Dirty Deeds, which was, is also a great song. Um, but I don't remember distinctly like, oh, I heard this album and I heard this album. And I heard It kind of happened all at once, it seems like. And I, I remember hearing Dirty Deeds and then shortly thereafter, maybe even simultaneously hearing um, Highway to Hell. And then later, I think a little bit later, hearing Back in Black, which did come out obviously a year or so 
a little year and a half later. So, but I don't really remember having or buying the albums at that point. I sort of just had them on tape and I loved them. I mean, that was really one of the first uh, hard rock bands that I got into. And I didn't know anything about them. I knew, you know, I thought they were from England, probably. I didn't necessarily, you know, parse that they were from Australia, although, you know, originally they were from the UK, but, you know, they were an Australian band. I didn't really parse that, didn't know it, but I love them. I don't even really remember seeing them on TV or anything like in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. I can't even remember understanding or thinking about what they look like. Mostly my mental image of that time for my recollection was just the album covers and especially the Dirty Deeds one and the Highway to Hell one was made a huge impression on me, but later, I think. Um, the other thing to me about, I remember that ACDC stuff was Bon Scott's voice was so intriguing to me. It was so different um, from pretty much anything else I had ever heard at that point. Um, and again, it wasn't like I had, you know, a vast knowledge of rock history and the diversity and breadth and depth in fifth grade. But I certainly had heard, you know, the Aerosmiths and the Led Zeppelins and all the other stuff we've talked about. But Bon Scott's voice was like, this is different. This is weird. Um, and I loved it. Um, I didn't really actually listen, you know, I'm going to be advocating for Highway to Hell. I didn't really listen to that in depth as a hardcore album until later. Ironically, I'd heard Highway to Hell. I'd heard, you know, some of the songs off of it, but it wasn't a favorite of mine for sure. I was much more into Dirty Deeds and Back in Black early on. And I do remember, you know, and we'll talk more about this throughout our evaluations, we obviously both grew up in Southern California and in the early 80s, mid 80s, early 80s in Southern California, there was this guy named Richard Ramirez, who was known as a night stalker, a serial killer um, who, you know, victimized, you know, dozens of people. He, you know, uh, murdered them and um, mutilated them, sexually assaulted um, throughout Southern California over a period of time. And he was sort of, he, he had left an ACDC trinket behind or a shirt, or I, I forget what it was. Well, well, it's a hat. a hat. He had a hat. Yeah, it was a hat. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about ACDC being associated with him. And of course, he was a night stalker. And, you know, there's a song on Highway to Hell called Night Prowler. And he never mentioned that song or the influence of that song directly, as you pointed out, Slip. But there was a presumption that he was somehow influenced by it because the the words of the song are sort of his MO kind of almost to a T, right? So yeah, totally. I guess you're, you'll probably dive in more into that song yeah, during we'll the email, but yeah, that, I mean, I, Richard Ramirez is part of my memories too. We grew up in Southern California and everyone was freaking terrified. Yeah. Of this. It was, it, it was, was like a huge thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it was, I mean, for a while he did really terrify Southern California. And I mean, we're not going to get into his whole history, but we'll talk a little bit about a little bit more. I've only seen ACDC once in my life, believe it or not. I mean, I think their peak was certainly when I was too young to go to shows. And I actually didn't see them until like the mid 90s um, when I was actually living um, on the East Coast. And I saw them on the uh, Ball Breaker tour, um, which wasn't really great, I have to say. Like Brian Johnson's voice was shot. Um, he screeched and yelled a lot and yelled a lot. The sound wasn't that great. It was very loud. I just remember like Angus playing over everybody. Um, it just sounded like I could hardly hear anything else. Couldn't hear the bass. The drums were just kind of there. It was kind of a mess of a show. It wasn't that great. Um, Interesting. Yeah. The, the I mean, they played their hits, of course. You know, they they uh, they played, I forget the exact set list at this point, but, you know, they played three or four songs off that album, which is not a great album. But, 
you know, of course they played their hits. They paid, you know, half the, half the back and black album and, you know, things like that. And it was cool seeing them. And yeah, it was kind of cool seeing Angus just dance around on the stage for two hours wearing his school uniform. And that was interesting um, to a point, but it, it just wasn't a great show. I have to, I have to say, um, as far as Angus Young and the influence on me as, you know, as a guitar player, he's great. I, I mean, he, to me, is like one of these, and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, from, uh, from Creedence Clearwater Revival too, you know, um, John Fogarty is another example of this, where you just say really simple guitar parts, but really great. And I think Angus Young is hugely influential. And he's hugely influential, um, not because he's some kind of virtuoso, because what he does, he does it so well and uniquely well and deceptively well. And we'll talk about that in my evaluation a little bit more. Um, ACDC was popular when we were in college, you know, that um, especially, I think, Back in Black. And there was another song, and to some degree, and we'll talk about this and how much that album was played because of its popularity and stuff like that. But there were other ACDC songs that were around. Like, there's this guy, I'm not going to mention his name here, but D- Darren will know, a Pappy's Roommate. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah, I mean, this guy who's... The worst. A, he, just the complete worst. douchebag. And he loved TNT, and he played it all the time, so that song kind of tainted uh, for me. Um, the other album I want to mention here, at kind of an honorable mention, and I think we'll talk about this throughout our evaluations as the, the precursor, one of the precursor albums too. Um, you know, Highway to Hell is an album called Powerage, which I had early on. I think it was one of the tapes that I had. I listened to it off and on over the years. I certainly was aware of it. I certainly know all the songs on it. But I have to say in doing preparing for this show, I've been listening to Powerage more than Highway to Hell. And it's such a great album. Um, it really is a great album. It, it, it is in the vein of Highway to Hell. It's, it's even more raw. Um, but it has some great songs on it. Um, if you haven't listened, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh yeah, those two guys are talking about the two great ACDC albums, we are. But go listen to Powerage. I, I think it's an honorable mention in terms of greatness. And there's a one song on there I want to call out called Give Me a Bullet, which may now be my favorite ACDC song, I have to say. It's like, it's pretty high up there. It's so good. So um, anyway, I will turn it over to you. That's generally my personal history. I'll talk about more as we go through the show. Cool. I'll t- I'll talk about it. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Powerage. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention about these two albums at the beginning that I had written down that I didn't mention that we'll talk about a lot is not only is it interesting to talk about these two albums because of the whole story around Bon Scott, the transition to a new singer, the the rise of ACDC's popularity, but also because they're the productions of Robert Mutt Lang, and it and it shows him his influence on the band right so you look at the at, at something like powerage and the difference between powerage and highway to hell like the growth there even though i'm going to agree with you about powerage i think it's 10 out of 10 perfect album uh just the production of highway to hell is really what brought them into the mainstream i think yeah. part of it and you know even even i think highway to hell powerage and back in black all great songs you know there's really they're really great albums i would give all of them a 10 out of 10 um and even, you know, the early Bon Scott stuff, I like all of it. You know, I, I even though, you know, there might be some tracks here and there on some of the other albums I don't think much of, I still think all those albums are great. And we'll talk about that more. But anyway, as far as my history goes, you know, the first heavy rock band I got into was Led Zeppelin. And it was a peer pressure thing. It was like people were like, hey, you know, 
This is what you're supposed to like. Now, once I got it, I immediately liked it anyway. Right. You know, but but I started getting into them. But the of of the bands that were when I first started getting into hard rock, fifth, sixth grade, um, the bands that you were supposed to like were Led Zeppelin. And then the next one was ACDC, you know, especially around sixth grade when Back in Black came out. But I remember hearing them on the radio. Um, Highway to Hell and Girls Got Rhythm were all over. Yeah. Album oriented rock radio, KLOS, KMET. And I remember liking them then. But when Back in Black hit, it was just another thing entirely. I mean, it just immediately was massive. And it was the thing to like. And of course, the title track, uh, as we'll get to, I love as much as I love Bon Scott, this is my favorite song by ACDC. It always has been and it always will be. I mean, there's something about that title track that's so unique, the way the rhythm is and stuff. And I'll get into that in my eval. But I remember also the first time I heard it on vinyl, the first time I heard Hell's Bells, actually, was my cousin Cindy, uh, who was kind of a punker. She It was weird how things were mixed in back then in yeah. the late 79 and 80. I mean, she had like records by Journey and Alice Cooper. Like she loved it at the ballads, like Only Women Bleed and shit by Alice Cooper. And her and her friend who were like, this teenage friend were kind of babysitting me one night. I was staying over at my aunt's house and, and they were kind of babysitting me and stuff. And they were playing stuff and she loved the Dickies, this and the Dickies yeah, that had yeah. just come out. She was like, oh, they're so hot. They weren't hot. No, they're not hot. I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, um, she also had Back in Black and she put it on. So it was weird. She had this mix of like classic kind of what you would call classic rock and punk rock. It was all kind of in a blender. You that know, was she, common back then, I think. Yeah, yeah she was kind yeah. of transitioning, you know. Yeah, I think it was. Um, and then, of course, right after Back in Black, uh, you know, to capitalize on the popularity, uh, we'll talk about the history of Dirty Deeds. It's actually a, the original Dirty Deeds was released in 1976 in Australia, but it was never, and internationally, but never in the United States. It was never available. So what they did was they put together a new Dirty Deeds that was similar, but they changed a few songs. Like Jailbreak was supposed to be on there. They didn't put it on there. They would release that later. But then they they released it, and it was like this weird Devo-looking album cover. I have the album now. So I have, uh, right now I have, um, just to go over the albums on vinyl, I have Powerage, Highway to Hell, Back in Black. Um, I have, for those about to rock, on tape. You know, we'll talk more about that one. Uh, Dirty Deeds on vinyl. And then I have the Australian version of uh, Let There Be Rock, which is slightly different. And then I have Powerage. Um, so those are the kind of ones I've accumulated. Oh, and I also have Flick of the Switch. We'll talk about that one as well. Um, so I accumulated these over the years. But I remember when Dirty Deeds came out, it was so strange because it looked like a new wave album cover, yeah, you know, with, with the, the uh, with, kind of hypnosis cover. Yeah, the eye covering the eyes, kind of the... Yeah, the, kind of a 50s scene yeah, yeah. with the eyes covered. It, You know, it, it was that hypnosis thing. Yeah. But it was released in, in 1981. And I remember you know, all of us were obsessed with that song. It's such a great song. And then also Big Balls, like Jeff mentioned, Big Balls was just like the greatest thing to us because I was all into Dr. Domeno. And this was like a Dr. Domeno oh, song by ACDC. 100%. I mean, it's so not subtle, but it's so clever and funny in its way. Uh, but what was funny in sixth grade, uh, this kid, Wes Bridger, he was like the most popular kid. All the girls liked him. All the guys wanted to be him. And he loved ACDC, especially Bon Scott. So he had gotten into Back in Black and all that. And he was just had no use for it after a while. He was just all about Bon Scott. And he, I remember he had a cassette tape of the Australian version of High Voltage, which is very different than the international US version. It almost has almost no songs you would know. 
but it had this great version. Their one of their first songs they did, "Baby, Please Don't Go," and I remember just being blown away by this because you know just the guitar is so fast and it's and and Bon Scott's vocals are just so evil sounding, and uh, you know it also had "She's Got Balls," which is like a very lesser version of "Big Balls," really stupid. Um, but I remember. I had, was getting into Led Zeppelin, Van Halen. I had Van Halen 1 on tape. And we'd bring tapes to school and have a little ghetto blaster at lunch and play them. And I was playing Van Halen 1, and he just, like, wanted to throw it out. He wanted nothing but ACDC. So these bands that were cool, like Led Zeppelin, I was playing Physical Graffiti. I just taped it. I just got the record. It was like, I loved it. Yeah. You know, and he was just like, this is bullshit. You know, I just want to hear fucking ACDC. And I remember this other kid named Tracy, this real big kid, kind of muscly. Um, he was a guy, Tracy. But he um, he was kind of dumb. And I remember he he was li- we were listening to Girls Got Rhythm, you know, one of the songs we'd play on this little ghetto blaster. And he was like, he misheard the lyrics. So the lyrics are, uh, I've been a, I've, what a, I've been around the I've had a mi- been around the world, uh, seen a million girls. Yeah. Ain't one of them got what my lady she got. He thought it was I've been around the world. I seen a million girls. I laid one of them down. <laughs> That's what he thought. And he saw, wait, a million girls laid one of them down. That's not that good. You know, that was really funny. <laughs> he did that math, did he? <laughs> yeah, he did that math. Like I, I laid one. Cause because it's like Bon Scott, like sometimes the the lyrics are hard to understand because yeah. he just kind of has this gurgling, evil, yeah, you know, almost yeah. golem like yeah, yeah, yeah. voice. So I of course I had Highway to Hell and Back in Black on cassette. Um I I had let there be rock on vinyl, which is another album, uh, the U S version. Then I, I've, I, that was my old record collection. I don't have it anymore, but I had the U S version. And of course, you know, that has a couple of really great songs on it. Classics, which we'll probably mention. Um, and then I didn't own the dirty deeds, ver- uh, album until recently, but I remember that problem child was on it. And I remember hearing that and that problem child is like on three albums, yeah. you know, it's like <laughs> they, they would just do that. Cause of this whole Aussie thing, Um, And then I remember buying for those about to rock after this, um, the day it came out and I thought it sucked. Like I did not like it. I, the title track I thought was boring, except for the end when the cannons go out. I thought that was awesome. And there were some okay songs like uh, I put the finger on you's kind of catchy and COD and, you know, uh, but like the, you know, it just was like, it didn't have the energy. It was also a Mutt Lang production. We'll talk about that because I think it's interesting. And I also already could notice that Brian Johnson's voice wasn't what it was on the previous album. Yeah. I could already notice that even though it still sounds pretty good on that album, I didn't pay any attention to flick of the switch. I would buy it much years later for like a few bucks and I have it, um, and fly on the wall, but I did like who made who yeah, like, and I, th- I almost feel like this is when ACDC kind of transitioned for a little while into kind of a, a singles band because who made who we'll talk about what that is in the history, but it was a, a, a kind of compilation soundtrack album. And it really, that was the only new song, but I thought it was kind of a comeback and heat sinker. I thought was kind of cool. Uh, I've since listened to the whole album of, uh, you know, blow up your video and don't think much of it, but I just remember um, Brian Johnson's voice. It just was getting worse with every album, like just not, it didn't have the, fullness it was kind of almost like painful to listen to yeah, like his shredded was it sounded shredded. Yeah, shredded. when i heard yeah. him in the mid 90s like it was it was it was not good it was just, it was screechy it was like the whole out uh, the whole concert i remember just going oh my god it's like very screechy sounding it sounded like you said sounded painful didn't sound good the, yeah the sound of the band wasn't good that didn't help but yeah i agree it almost sounds like 
Brian Johnson's voice at this time sounds like me doing my Brian Johnson uh, imitation, yeah. which no one wants to, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of whatever, you know, um, yeah. all of sorry, people's ears. I'm sure Jeff might have to adjust that. Um, no, I'm just anyway, turn more on me out. singing back in black in a minute. But um, I remember at Razor's Edge, you know, my cousin Eric was super into this record. This record was actually pretty huge. It was like five times platinum, I believe. And it was sort of a comeback, you know, and they had a great song, Thunderstruck. This is totally a ballpark song, you know, like we talked about with The Stroke. This is another one of those. I really like it. And I kind of like Money Talks. I think it's catchy. But the rest of the album, Mistress for Christmas, you know, kind of about <laughs> Donald Trump. It was actually about Donald Trump at the time, the young, younger Donald Trump. Not very good. Um, I got the U.S. version of High Voltage from a, from a thrift shop um, at one point, And I really like that. You know, I think that's pretty solid, too. It's kind of mostly the album TNT, as we'll get into, with a, with a few tracks from the original High Voltage. Um, and I remember my friend Bob was telling me he thought Ball Breaker was good. I don't think so. I don't agree. I think, uh, you know, Ball Breaker is the album they made that Jeff saw the tour in 95. It It is uh, produced by the well, who I think is the most overrated producer of all time, Rick Rubin. Uh, it doesn't sound very good. And the songs are like almost like self-parody. Uh, and I think that most of the ACBC albums since have been this way. And I just can't get past the vocals, really. It's hard for me to listen to like Stiff Upper Lip or, you know, and these other albums, Rock or Bust or whatever they're called. Um, at any rate, uh, so one other story here, um, you know, I'll talk about a few things after this. But but the main story here is that in the late, early 2000s, late 90s, I worked for a division of Apple called FileMaker, and I was like technical support. And we'd have these big parties. Like we had this big uh, part, kind of Halloween party where we all got together. Uh, I think it was a Halloween party. It was some celebration. Maybe Mac OS 8 came out or whatever. We used to sell that. Um, I forget. But but um, there was some party we had on a Friday and we, we rehearsed and played as this band. Um, and I was playing drums. You know, I'm not very good, but I can play some things. And... Um, and and I was also saying I wanted, you know, they wanted to play back in black, which is ironic because that's like I'll get to that. That's one of the songs I can actually play. Um, but I didn't play drums on it. They wanted me to sing. So I sang it and I dedicated it to Steve Jobs as a joke because he was always wearing a stupid black turtleneck. <laughs> so I said, this is dedicated Did to get Steve fired Jobs immediately. No, I didn't. Thankfully, he wasn't on his radar, but I fucking brought the house down with that shit. And I just did what you what you heard. Just say, Maggie, blah, exactly. but people were like, people were into it. You know, it was like, and I was terrible. I was fucking terrible. We had a couple other people who actually could sing. They did some dumb Green Day shit or whatever. I think people were just into it because my song was the coolest. Um, but anyway, it was a fun event. Um, and um, later I got from my friend Aaron as part of like, he was wanting, he needed some money. And so he just sold me like, a pack of albums. He just said, I'll just give you a bunch of albums and I'll pick them. And he gave me the Australian version of Let There Be Rock, which I'll talk more about in, in, in the in the history. Um, and then I finally discovered Powerage. I'd never really, I only heard Sin City and Rock and Roll Damnation. I'd never heard this album. Like Jeff talks about, give me a bullet, uh, give me a bullet. But there's other like Riff Raff and these yeah. other. I mean, I think this song, this album is great. It also happens to be Keith Richards' favorite uh ACDC album. He's actually a huge fan of them, which makes sense because they're kind of like that basic rock, like the Stones with great songs. Um, and for a while, Powerage was my favorite. Uh, it kind of superseded the other two. I think now it's tough. It's between the three of them, I think, really for the best. Uh, but they all have their merits. And I got Flick of the Switch and it's not that good. 
but it has a couple of really good songs. It's just, I really think it misses uh, Mutt Lang, as we'll talk about in the history. And then the past two weeks, I've just struggled. I've gone back and forth on this. I, I promised to advocate for Back in Black, and I have my reasons for advocating for Back in Black. But um, but yeah, I love Highway to Hell so much. Um, and I love Bon Scott so much. It's tough. But I also listen to Brian Johnson's audiobook. And I, th- I got to say, this is one of the best rock books I've ever, ever listened to. It's also, I also recommend the audiobook because he reads the whole fucking thing. Yeah, his, he's his a great storyteller. Yeah. His accent's incredible. He's a great storyteller. He's witty. He's funny. He's clever. And I love that the book, it just goes up to back in black and it ends. It's all just his early years. And it doesn't go into the ASA. Maybe there's a part two coming. But to me, that really is the most interesting part. So he goes through Jordy and all that stuff. I'm going to go into this stuff a little bit, not too much. Let's jump into the zeitgeist. So zeitgeist for ACDC is interesting because it's a lot older stuff than you would think. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest influences on Angus Young, and you can see it by his stage performance, right? It's Chuck Berry. Uh, and by the sound. But I mean, right. his guitar playing is 100% dry from Chuck Berry in the best possible way. Yeah, like Let There Be Rock. You know, it's these basic kind of old style, you know, it's kind of 50s rock and roll. Obviously, there's also blues. You know, they played Baby, uh, they did a cover version of Baby, the classic Baby Please Don't Go. Uh, But they've mentioned Little Richard. You know, that's one of the reasons they like Brian Johnson, because we'll get to Bon Scott and Brian Johnson. They knew each other, kind of. And they, Bon Scott had said that Brian Johnson are reminding him of Little Richard, which is one of ACDC's favorites. So they listened to a lot of older rock and roll. This could have also due, been due to their brothers, like the Young's brothers being older um, and them having a lot of older siblings in this whole musical family. I also think the British invasion is also an influence. I mean, they mentioned that they saw the Yardbirds early on with Jimmy Page when Jimmy Page was the lead guitarist there. Um, they always also mentioned the Who. And again, they love the blues, the Rolling Stones and the Blues Brothers. Uh, uh, blues breakers, not the blues brothers, the blues breakers. Um, Did we ever and, figure out, by the way, I think I misspoke in a prior episode about Jimmy Page being in the blues breakers at one point. I can't keep track. I don't remember Yardbirds. him being, but I never fact checked that. I mean, maybe our 200th episode will right, do well, like the like, bloopers. Because I've said so many bands. things that are wrong. I've pronounced names wrong. I, I listen to our old episodes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, dude, you got that super wrong. You know, <laughs> my mom actually pointed out some stuff I got wrong about some things, yeah. uh, you know, because she listens to the show. So, so at any rate, um, but I would say, yeah, the kinks are a huge influence on riff-based rock, you know, with You Really Got Me and stuff. And then, of course, there's a late 60s bluesy rock. You know, you have Hendrix, Cream. Everybody cites Cream. We'll have to do Cream one of these days because I'm just not the biggest fan of Cream. But the people who grew up in the 60s, everyone mentions them. They were so influential. And I get how they were groundbreaking. I'm a big fan. We, we could, we, that'll be a good one for us to debate. So I Yeah, like yeah. Cream. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, like we went into Simon and Garfunkel and I was kind of short and I came out really loving them. So yeah. it might be the same thing. Maybe I just haven't been exposed. I mean, I like some songs, yeah. you know, but, um, uh, you know, and free is mentioned cactus, uh, you know, are mentioned by the brothers. Um, obviously you're, you're in a world where there's Sabbath purple Zeppelin. I mean, I think ZZ top is another real bluesy, hard rock riff based, uh, you know, with great guitar playing. Certainly there's uh, 70 stuff for sure. Right. Right. And a little bit of the glam with Slade, um, the really early ACDC, but pre Bon Scott, we'll talk about was sounded like that kind of a Slade band. Um, And then there's Aussie hard rock. There was a whole world of Aussie hard rock going on. And um, 
this band called Buffalo that's actually fucking pretty badass. If people look up their stuff on YouTube, just look up Buffalo Australian rock band. Uh, they're really heavy and really good. Um, and they actually became a band called Rose Tattoo that is pretty much an ACDC kind of band. Um, they're pretty good. They're, they kind of do the ACDC thing too, another Aussie band. And then I will mention that Buffalo, that the cover of the Australian version of Let There Be Rock, it's just some fingers on a fretboard, kind of a weird uh, uh, double exposure photo, black and white. That is actually not uh, Angus or Malcolm. It's actually this guitarist, Chris Turner from Buffalo. I don't know why that happened, but they just had a good photo and they just used that. Um, and then there's the band called the Angels, which which renamed themselves to Angel City. They're almost like ACDC crossed with New Wave. And they're around the same time. And they're pretty good. I used to have their album Face to Face and I got rid of it. But then I was watching some YouTube videos and I'm like, yeah, I should have not got rid of that album. It's pretty good. I should have given it a chance. But they're all kind of, I think Rose Tattoo and Angels are more influenced by ACDC, if anything. So ACDC was first. So they were kind of an original, even though it was a back to basics kind of rock thing. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to say in the seventies of anything I might've missed that might be related. It was, this was a tough one because ACDCs, even though they're basic, they're kind of original. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No, I think you covered the most, yeah. most of it. I'm sure there's others around the fringes, but I think, yeah, no, I don't have any others that come to mind. Okay. All right. So I'm going to jump into the history. It's just interesting. We've got to go over it. Um, obviously uh, as, as Jeff mentioned, uh, the Young family was originally based in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, and uh, the uh, parents, William Young and Margaret Young, ended up having eight kids between 1933 and 1955. I mean, holy crap. Um, Stephen, Margaret, John, Alexander, William, George, Malcolm, and Angus. Uh, William worked several jobs. Uh, just, you know, he was he had served in World War II. He was a postman. Um, and music was at the center of the family life, right? Uh, all, every, all the siblings played some kind of instrument. Um, and then the older brothers, which we'll be talking about a lot because they figure a lot in the story, um, especially George Young, uh, was in, the, in a band called the Easy Beats, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then Alexander Young, another older brother, was in this band called Grapefruit, which was a little less famous because Easy Beats do have a couple of garage rock classics uh, that everyone I think knows. Um, and Malcolm uh, was born in 1953 and Angus was the youngest born in 1955. So there was this whole in, in, in the late fifties, early sixties, there was this whole campaign on the part of Australia to get people in England to move there because it was a relatively, you know, non-populated a colony of England uh, and former prison colony, in fact, right? former prison colony. And so there was this whole push to, you know, you know, we have jobs here, we have housing. And so the Youngs decided to move. And originally they lived almost in this weird refugee camp in these Nissan hunts, Nissan hut, which looks just like a British version of a Quonset hut, if you know what that looks like. Um, and they, were not happy at first, you know, they were, they were really suffering. There was, you know, bugs, cockroaches and things and these things or whatever. Um, but this is in, in this, one of these refugee camps, this is where George Young met Harry Vanda, who was a, um, another European, he was Dutch, uh, expatriate. And he would, he would go on to be a huge part of the ACDC story as well, but we'll be talking about Vanda and Young a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, they they would also be part of the Easy Beats. And the older brothers um, taught Malcolm and Angus how to play. 
Angus actually first started playing banjo and then he switched to guitar. Um, and he got his first Gibson SG, which is the signature guitar he plays to this day uh, in 1970, right? So I mentioned the Easy Beats. This was a uh, kind of 60s British Invasion style band formed by uh, Vanda and Young in 1964. They lasted for five years in 1969. Their two most famous songs are Friday on My Mind, which is actually a pretty massive worldwide hit. I believe it's on the Nuggets compilation and it's a great song. Um, and then Sorry, which you probably heard as well. Um, they broke up in 69 between 70 and 73. Uh, they would also become these songwriters and they would write this song later for John Paul Young called love is in the air, which I'm sure, you know, Jeff, right? Yeah. Love is in the air. Yeah. Right. And they would later found the new wave band uh, flash in the pan. And they wrote uh, some songs for the other brothers band grapefruit. But a fun fact I found is that, in Dire Straits, Sultans of Swing, when he talks about Guitar, Guitar George and Harry Doesn't Mind, Guitar George Knows All the Chords, that's about Young and Banda. Oh, no Because shit, they were these really? kind of pop, yeah, yeah. Wow. So that was a, a fact I found. I was really shocked by that. Uh, but I think it's because they became kind of these pop songwriters on the side while they also worked with ACDC. Um, Angus attended a, a Asheville Boys High School, dropped out at 15, but this is where he got the uniform, right? The, we know that uh, Angus's signature uh, is wearing that school uniform. Uh, for a while, he did some odd jobs after that, worked at a butcher shop. He was a typesetter. Um, he actually put together typeset a porno mag once, I guess. Uh, that was a fun fact. Malcolm was playing in bands at this time. You know, he was a little older. He played in a band called The Velvet Underground, uh, but it was not that one, different one, <laughs> more of a heavy rock band. A local and chapter. Ang yeah, local chapter. And then Angus formed a short-lived band called Kentucky, uh, spelled wrong, but it was inspired by the new uh, fast food chain that had cropped up in Australia, Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, later changed the name to Tantrum. Now, during this time, uh, you know, Young and Vanda started to notice that these guys were really good. You know, that Angus, Angus would just practice all the time. Both brothers were uh, chain smokers. Uh, Malcolm liked to party and drink, but Angus never was really a drinker. Um, I think there are a few episodes where he got drunk, but is rare. He basically was fueled by cigarettes and chocolate milk. That's like basically <laughs> what he would drink. Uh, maybe until this day, I have no idea. Yeah, exactly. So um, Young and Vanda, like I said, they were in the UK uh, between 70 and 73, writing hits for people, working with grapefruit, et cetera. They came back and formed this band called the Marcus Hook Band, uh, which has a single album called Tales of Old Granddaddy. Uh, and, and that, it was in 73, and Malcolm and Angus are members of that band. Um, and I guess some of the early, I didn't really listen to this uh, just because of time constraints and other stuff I wanted to focus on for the episode, but supposedly there's some, there's some basic songs that sound like they would become ACDC songs uh, later. Um, now, at this point, Malcolm was 20, Angus was 18, uh, this is funny because Angus is always listed as a teenager later on. It's kind of a myth that he was that young, but he was still pretty young. Um, and they formed ACDC. Um, you know, Angus was 18, Malcolm was 20. They formed ACDC. They got a vocalist named Dave Evans. You know, 
I, I list the bass and drummer here. It doesn't really matter at this point because they would just switch bassists and drummers constantly at this point. Um, and they recorded a single, Can I Sit Next to You, which would later be recorded with Bon Scott, re-recorded. And this stuff, you can find footage of them playing. And Dave Evans is like fully glammed out. He's kind of prancing and stuff. It really doesn't, you could tell he was not the right singer for the band. Not that um, Dave and, Evans, the one that would go on to be called The Edge. Oh, no, not that, not that Dave Evans, okay. different Dave Evans. Okay. And confusingly enough, there's a Mark Evans later and he's not related to Dave Evans. But right. anyway, so at this point, Angus was not, he didn't discover the school uniform yet. Uh, he didn't start using it. He would dress in different costumes like Spider-Man, Superman, and Zorro. Um, and then eventually discovered the school uniform. Now they got the name from the back of, uh, there was a ACDC mark on the back of their sister Margaret's sewing machine. But what was funny is when they, got this name they were in a cab and the cab driver's like you know what that means mate you know <laughs> that's gay that means you're gay um and they're like they were kind of mortified but it actually ended up getting them uh a bunch of gigs like they got this gig opening for lou reed and they would get gigs at like kind of gay clubs you know because of this name even though they re didn't really fit in it is that sort of uh, imply that you go both ways is that the idea yeah there? i think it's bisexual is, okay. is it's the term for bisexual um you know, they started getting some notoriety and they were noticed by Ted Albert, who was working with Vanda and Young. And Ted Albert ran this record company called Albert Records, an Australian record company. And he heard them jamming. And he's like, whenever those, you know, he's all, I, I've, I've got to do something with these guys. And they also became uh, linked with another guy, Michael Browning, who would become their manager and who would really be instrumental in them getting off the ground and getting some success. Um, they booted Dave Evans out in 73. Um, then he went to join you too. I guess Jeff made a joke there. Um, bon Scott joins in 1974, right? And so now we have the great Bon Scott joining now a few, a, a few words about him. So uh, one of my favorite facts is I was looking up facts and history about Bon Scott. Um, and on Wikipedia, uh, just to give you the kind of idea of the kind of guy Bon Scott was and his character, there is a section entitled Marriage and Alleged Children. <laughs> um, okay, this perfectly that, captures Bon Scott. That should have been his biography, you know, yeah, totally. if he had lived. Totally. So he was born Ronald Bed Belford Scott, July 9th, 1946 in Far Scotland. So he was also Scottish mm. originally. Uh, and he was another Aussie Scottish expatriate. His family moved to the Melbourne area of Australia in 1952 when he was six. And he quickly got the name Bonnie Scotland, which um, uh, he got the nickname Bon after Bonnie Scotland or Bonnie Prince Charlie, I think is the is the uh, historical figure that, you know, one of his classmates latched onto there. Family moved to another part of Australia called Fremantle in 56. He also dropped out of school at age 15. Uh, he spent a short time in juvenile hall. And this is what Wikipedia says for unlawful carnal knowledge. Huh. So, but he also, uh, but also for stealing twelve gallons of petrol, uh, he later tried to join the Australian Army, but was rejected for being "quote unquote" socially maladjusted. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, he became a drummer. He was originally a drummer, and we'll talk more about that when we talk about what his contributions were, or what 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 he did with Back in Black, which was nothing. But there's there's some overlap there. Um, and he became a drummer in the band called the Spectres. But then he became co-lead singer in this band called the Valentines. And interestingly enough, the Valentines actually covered some Easy Beat songs. So there's some connection there. Um, and they had one hit uh, in 1969 called Juliet. It was a national hit. 
Um, he left them to form the prog rock band Fraternity, which was later renamed Fang. They were around from 70 to 73. And you can find footage of them on YouTube. And Bon Scott is playing a fucking flute. Hmm. Like he's pretty talented, man. And his his vocals, I mean, it's like kind of like a Jethro Tull kind of Procol Harum kind of band. Um, and what's interesting is there's some overlap with Brian Johnson's story, which I'll get to when I cover Brian Johnson later, uh, where, where Scott opened up for Jordy. Brian Johnson's band during this time. So they met, had met each other. Um, the band went on hate hiatus in 73. Um, and Bon Scott just ended up getting a day job. And then we, as we heard in the intro, he actually became, um, ACDC's driver at this point. He also, uh, was drunk driving a motorcycle at this time. He got in a really bad accident. So he actually didn't think he was going to be able to do something, but, when he was ACDC's driver and they <laughs> like kicked Billy Evans Joel. out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. When he was ACDC's, <laughs> yeah, totally. When he was ACDC's driver uh, and he'd heard Evans had been kicked out, he wanted to try out to be singer and uh, the singer and all, all the brothers, including George thought he was much too old because he was like, you know, 10 years older than everyone else. Uh, but when they heard him sing, that was it. Right. Yep. All right. So, oh, you said you said something here about look up skid, the term yeah, just, slang term skid. Just yeah, just uh, Bon Scott's look with the jeans and the cutoff, you know, like all that, it's, you know, the derogatory term for some metal dude like skid, like Bon Scott just right. embodies that. Like you look, you look that up in the dictionary. There's a picture of Bon Scott and like maybe Cliff Burton, you know, like right next to him. So anyway, just wanted to point. Yeah, that out. totally. I mean, he yeah, he's kind of gross. Yeah. Um, at any rate. uh, so they recorded an album, High Voltage. This is the Australian version, October of 1974. Um, it didn't really do much, uh, but this is at the after shortly after the album was recorded, they they got Phil Rudd, their classic drummer on drums, and Mark Evans, uh, no relation to Dave Evans, as I mentioned, on bass. Um, shortly after that, they recorded a single called It's a Long Way to the Top. Um, and this is a single where Bon Scott actually plays fucking bagpipes. Yeah. Um, really interesting. Um, they, uh, they're, you know, one thing to note here is that this is the one song of the Bon Scott era that Brian Johnson will not do, uh, because he always considered it Bon Scott's signature song. And, uh, so he sees it as off limits, which I think is really cool. Um, you know, this is a great song. It's one of my all-time favorite ACDC songs. And one thing that's interesting, too, is they rarely played this live because it with the bagpipes, they would ha all have to tune to the bagpipe to, in order to play it. Mm. Otherwise, it would not sound right. And, of course, it's difficult for Scott to kind of go between bagpipes and, and not. Um, they started appearing on the show, Australian show, which is kind of like the Australian version of Top of the Pops called Countdown. And there, are, there were tons of appearances between 74 and 77. And they actually... You know, ACDC is what I think of as a dude band. You know, I bet if you go to an ACDC uh, show back in the day, it would probably be mostly guys. But actually, early on in Australia, they kind of got a lot of girls. Hmm. Uh, they were kind of almost like a teeny bopper thing. Um, it was really interesting. There's videos uh, of them doing like the Hard Day's Night running through the streets away oh, from yeah. girls where he's Bon Scott to the skid point is wearing nothing but a tidy uh, cutoff jeans. And nothing else. Just like running through some town in Australia. Yeah, with, with his broccoli. I mean, obviously, his his, broccoli. Uh, that's the other Spinal Tap reference. We're going to talk about Spinal Tap a lot with the, the, some of the lyrics with this band. But yeah, so so they then they released TNT, which is kind of their first really solid record um, in December of 75. 
Around this time, uh, the manager, uh, Browning, he kind of put together this fake show. You know, he put together, staged this kind of fake show with ACDC and kind of did a video, like early videotape of them. And he sent this around to record companies to make it look like they were the biggest thing in Australia. And they were pretty big at this point in Australia, but they were not the biggest thing. But he kind of made them bigger than life. And uh, that got the attention of Atlantic. And they were signed to a sub a subdivision of Atlantic called Atco uh, at this time. And they also started going on a tour of the UK. They called the Lock Up Your Daughters tour. Um, and around this time, good advice to start Bon Scott around, probably. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, they around this time they were you know, obviously punk was getting huge in the UK. So they were obviously compared to this because they were very back to basics. You know, they weren't doing long epic songs. They were doing very basic rock and roll. And this really annoyed them because they just saw, they just like, these guys can't play. This is not like us. The Sex Pistols are terrible. You know, they they were just super annoyed by this. But I could see that because they were kind of a back to basics thing, but in a more classic sense. I think than than punk was. It wasn't as much of a departure. Um, in September of 1970, in April of 1976, sorry, I jumped the gun. They released High Voltage, which was uh, the international version, which was a compilation of tracks from TNT and from the debut. Um, but but like every all but two songs are from TNT, which is definitely the stronger of those two albums. Um, and in September of 1976, they quickly followed that up with the Australian version of uh, Dirty Deeds. Now, this was the Australian version than the international version, but the U.S. record company hated this, which is crazy because it has the song Dirty Deeds. Um, they hated this, and so they they did not release it until 1981, on, as we mentioned, on the heels of Back in Black. And the U.S. version is different. It's missing Jailbreak, which was later released years later on a compilation called Jailbreak 74. Um, so they did, you know, they released that. They followed that up with Let There Be Rock. Now, I should mention, none of these albums charted in the U.S. at all. Right. They were building up a following in the UK. They were building some reputation, but they really had no uh, no presence in the US at all. I should also mention that all of these albums are produced by Van Dunn Young up until this point. Uh, they followed that up with Let There Be Rock, both Australian and US versions. Uh, the US version is the first album to feature the ACDC logo as we know it today. Right. The kind of weird medieval with the lightning bolt in between. Um, and you know, that, obviously that album features the classic title track, uh, and, a uh, whole lot of Rosie, another absolute classic by the band. But again, they didn't really do much in the U S at all. Uh, they started playing some festival for big acts like black Sabbath, rainbow, Ted Nugent, Aerosmith, kiss UFO, uh, blue Easter cold, et cetera. And oftentimes they would steal the show just because of, you know, Bon Scott's incredible voice and Angus's incredible performance. I mean, he would be jumping all over the stage, running around. He would, land on his back and flail uh this last move was was the result of an accident he'd had where he tripped and fell and the audience went crazy so he just decided to add it to his act um in late 1977 mark evans was fired and cliff williams on base now we have the classic lineup this is the classic acdc lineup that would make most of their classic albums and would be the, the lineup for most of most of the time it would change a few times as i'll mention later but up into highway and hell Highway to Hell and Back in Black. This is the lineup. Uh, Powerage was released in May 1978. It was the first album to break the top 200 in the US. Uh, as Jeff mentioned, and I mentioned, we both love this album. This was a really solid effort, but it did not make the impact they expected. And the record company was getting nervous. 
uh, they they released uh, "If You Want Blood, You Got It," and we'll talk about what the record company did and what happened uh, in Jeff's section. Uh, they uh, released a, a live album, "If You Want Blood, You Got It," in 1978, uh, and now we're to the section of "Highway to Hell." So they released "Highway to," you know, they they recorded and released "Highway to Hell." And so Highway to Hell to the Death of Bon Scott to Back in Black. We will go over this in more detail in each of our sections. Um, and I'll, as I mentioned, I'll do a brief overview of uh, post Back in Black highlights after my section. So, Jeff, take it away. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, just kind of drilling in a little bit here. You mentioned them, you know, being uh, somewhat popular in Australia, Europe, UK, but the American uh, market remained elusive. They really didn't get any airplay. Um, Atlantic Record uh, turned down releasing um, Dirty Deeds. You know, they're like, this isn't going to do anything here. The live album, If You Want Blood, it was supposed to, you know, be like a Kiss thing, uh, you know, a live thing and, and it, it, you know, grow and explode because of the excitement. Didn't do it's anything. It's got an incredible album cover that yeah. makes it look really, it's an incredible live photo. Yeah, uh, with Angus when he's like got a, he's he's bloody and it's like I forget what it is, but it's like a really striking album cover that was designed to capture the excitement. Yeah, it didn't really do anything, and in in early 1979, you know Atlantic Records, you know summoned you know the manager Michael Browning, you know basically to say this isn't working in the U.S. and you have a problem. Your singer Bon Scott's not really right for American radio and, you know, you should replace him. And they they refused. I mean, Browning refused mostly because he knew that the young brothers would, would uh, never agree to it. And thank goodness, you know, that didn't go anywhere. Um, they started working with, um, you know, the first choice uh, on the next album was a producer named Eddie Kramer. We've heard of him before, right. Um, having to do with uh, the kiss alive episode and, and beyond. And they started working together a bit in Miami on that. And Eddie Kramer, to the record company, is a trusted guy, you know, very famous, capable guy. And he just didn't really jive with the band. His thing, you know, like, I think he said something like uh, about uh, Bon Scott that he had an incredible voice, but he just couldn't handle him personally. Like, Bon Scott, as, uh, you know, no doubt he... uh, was a huge drinker um, and did not just start that uh, a hobby late in life. You know, he was uh, drinking heavily, trying to make that album, and, and Eddie Kramer just uh, couldn't uh, deal with it. The rest of the band didn't really like the new producer thing. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, George Young and, and Harry Vanda were the producers up to that point, and they didn't really like the record company. Um, you know, foisting uh, that upon them. Um, and the basic news was, uh, you know, they call up the record company, Browning did, and said, hey, uh, we don't want this guy. He's hopeless. He wants us to do a cover of, you know, the Spencer Davis group, Give Me Some Loving, and that ain't our thing. Um, so they got together with uh, this guy named uh, Robert John Mutt Lang. Um, and he started uh, working on early versions of what would become Highway to Hell. Um, he started playing around with the mix in, in different ways that w- was new to them. Um, you know, more bass, more rhythm stuff, 
on songs like Girls Got Rhythm, Shot Down in Flame, Touch Too Much, If You Want Blood. Uh, Mutt Lang was a, a good, really good musician and a, and a really talented singer. Um, and it earned the respect of the band. Like, um, you know, he was trying to show Angus, you know, some things to do and how to structure his solos, be more melodic. Um, and basically said, hey, Angus, uh, come sit here and let me show you how to do this. And Angus was like, you know, fuck you, mate. Like, I know how to play uh, guitar. Um, but, you know, they st- he started earning their respect that he actually knew what he was doing and the suggestions that he was making were working. Um, and, you know, he was trying to, you know, help all of them out because, again, Mutt was experienced. He was very talented and he knew what he wanted out of them, most of all. Um, in particular, you know, his work with he he figured out a way to work with Bond in a way that uh, Kramer could not. And he's trying to tell Bond, it's like, hey, man, you're not going to get the sound out of your voice unless you learn how to breathe correctly and was trying to um, show him that. And Bon Scott, being Bon Scott, said, you know, if you're so fucking good, you do it. And so Lang sat down and he he, he was already sitting down. He didn't bother to stand up and he just did the part how he wanted Bon to do it. And they were just like, oh, shit, this guy can sing, too. He can play guitar. He can sing. Anyway, it, it worked. Um, and they started playing around with Highway to Hell. And everybody knew that that riff uh, was going to uh, be a big deal, which I'll get to in a second when we get into the song tracks. But uh, that is, you know, they just kept hacking away at it. And that album uh, came together. You had mentioned, by the way, all the, the classic lineup. I'll just reiterate for people. you uh, Bon Scott, Angus, Young Malcolm Young, Cliff Williams, Phil Rudd, and then, of course, Mutt Lang, um, who's really got to be considered a member of the band at this point. I mean, you know, at least in terms of the songs, the construction, certainly the productions. But more than just the production, he was a big part of 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 the sound um there they um went on to actually do a lot of the recording um in london um they were playing around with stuff early on and this the london was where they recorded the bulk of it they recorded for like 15 hours a day um they were trying to get to Lang really wanted like a simplicity uh sort of motto really keeping them true to themselves i think in a lot of ways um, they were all sort of minimalists, and Mutt Lang kind of got that that was their thing, maybe different than what Eddie Kramer was uh, trying to do. Um, he's very meticulous, Mutt Lang was, and really just wanted to dial in on every little last part of the sound. And um, even Bon Scott, who wasn't impressed by much, was like, this, this dude knows um, what he's doing, right? Um, Mutt uh, was like uh, sort of like a... I, I would say, you know, like a cool uncle, it seems like. I don't know, Slip, if you had a, an idea about that. but it, Yeah, that's really interesting, though, because what's interesting is, obviously, for those, most people know that Robert Mutt Lang would go on to pr- produce some of the other biggest selling albums of all time, including Def Leppard's Hysteria and Shania Twain's Come On Over. And he would become much more, much more meticulous and the the recordings would be drawn out over years. And what's interesting about this is he's meticulous, but when you listen to the music, it sounds natural and raw and, and powerful. It doesn't sound like uh, overproduced at right. all. Like to me, it sounds perfectly produced, but it's also interesting that 
as a producer, he's not just twiddling knobs. He's no. actually getting in there and making suggestions about how they how they sing, how they perform, how the riff might be better. Um, you know, that's why I look at someone like Rick Rubin and he just sits there and, you know, so, has been lucky enough to be part of some of the greatest albums of all time. I'm not sure what he actually did. And a lot of his albums sound like shit, but Mutt, Mutt's albums always sound amazing. Even when he's being really meticulous, like Hysteria, whatever you think of it, it's quite a production. Sure. And this where it's like he's involved but it's it's not like he's changing acdc to the extent that you wouldn't recognize him he's just making it bigger and better enhancing what's already there. right right i mean i think the bottom line with with mutt and, and maybe i mean certainly this is true with with def leppard as well is i think the sentiment was mutt it was really demanding as a producer but he wasn't asking him to do anything that he couldn't do himself, maybe even better. Yeah. So it's sort of like he earned that respect right out of the gate. And that was a, that's a big part of his success. And that certainly was with, with ACDC. So, all right. So they recorded this album. Let's go into um, some of the songs and lyrics. So highway to hell kicks off the album. And I wanted to uh, just read um, a little quote by a Hollywood Steve of, um, you know, Yacht Rock fame, uh, who is a rock critic, uh, in addition to being on, on Yacht Rock. And he says, the lyrics displayed a fierce, stubborn independence in his choice of lifestyle. Asking nothing, leave, leave me be. No one's going to slow me down. But not really loneliness of hell. Going down, party time, my friends are going to be there too, etc. It's ironic that Scott seems to be almost alive when facing death and a fearless bravado of Highway to Hell, yet it's undeniably true given his positively unhinged performance. Here's my favorite part, by the way. The untutored ugliness of his voice, (laughs) which is a great line. The playfulness in which he used it to his advantage, the wails, the growls, the screams, the scratches, all these qualities combined to give a song an unbridled enthusiasm without which it might take on the air of ambivalence. I just thought that was, you know, right on, and I just wanted to quote Hollywood Steve. Um, Angus Young would talk about how that song really just kind of came to be and that the, um, the, uh, he just was, you know, playing around with riff a lot. Um, you know, the, the genesis of the highway to hell wasn't necessarily satanic. It's more about touring and the hell that is touring, crawling off a bus at four in the morning, getting up, having to do another gig, you know, that kind of grind was really what, uh, it is. He's talked about how, when you're sleeping with Bon Scott's stinky ass feet, two feet from your face, that's pretty close to hell. Um, I'd imagine his feet are not the worst part of what's not on him, <laughs> but you know, there you go. The other quote I like is Malcolm Young was saying that when I first heard that initial, uh, you know, series of chords on highway to hell, it was so great. It stuck out like a dog's balls, which is, uh, oh, that's funny. A great quote, very lyrical, of course. So I'm just going to play a little bit of it, right? So here's, uh, here's highway to hell.
just great, right? I mean, that yeah. opening riff, his voice. I would say that, I mean, Bon Scott would never sound better than he does on this album. And I would argue there's never been a better match in rock history between a singer's unique sound and the sound of the music. It is just so intimately connected with ACDC and just the just demonic sound of the guitar and band and Bon Scott's voice is just incredible. You know, this song and the music of ACDC and the, and the chord progressions and stuff like that, repetitive. I just have to say, you know, there's a lot of songs that sound similar. There's a lot of similarity between this song and, and the other song I mentioned earlier, Give Me a Bullet. And, you know, one knock against ACDC is there's a lot of recycled sort of riffs and things like that in, in various ways. But, you know, I guess if you have a lot of really good stuff um, and you're around long enough, there's going to be some. OK, but I have to I have to disagree to a certain extent because that's part of the mystical magic and mystery of ACDC, because all I have to do is go to you. And you know what fucking song? Yeah, it is. that's right. Like those first three. Just the, you don't even need the second three. The first three chords, barely three. I mean, they're almost like two chords. I mean, it's like, it's just like, you know, it's just very simple, but you immediately know it. Now, how do they do that? Because that, to me, that is the hardest thing to do. You take these three chords and you could instantly, I could do that to anybody and they would be able to name the song. I mean, to me, that's like mind blowing. And yeah, you're right. His vocals on this are freaking insane. I mean, you know, I love Powerage, but his voice on this is next level. And it does, I didn't know the stuff about Mutt Lang, you know, that you talked about. And that makes a lot of sense. Like he's really bigger sounding on this record. Yeah, really push Mutt Lang, really yeah. pushed Bon Scott to the point where Bon Scott was not happy with Mutt Lang at all. But, you know, the results speak for themselves, right? Right. Um, the next song on this great album, Girls Got Rhythm, uh, I don't, I'm not going to play this one. It's, it's a really good song. Good straight ahead rock. At the end of it, he screams, you know, the girls got rhythm, you know, but I can't certainly not do uh Mutt Lang. And that's a very poor yeah, impression. Like, it's, yeah. it's so good. It's so, it's good. so good. It's this, so good. This might be, I don't know. It's tough. I always change what my favorite song on this album is because there's so many good ones. This is up there for me. I yeah. think this song is badass. I also, um, uh, what was I going to say about this one? Um, yeah, I, I love the gang vocals. Like this album kind of has more of those gang, like gang, but when I say gang vocals, I'm talking about the stuff he would real, Mutt Lang would really do with Def Leppard, those right. big background vocals, right? Yeah. Obviously they get more elaborate and more complex. Like Pyromania uh, is a classic right. example. That song Pyromania of that, right? Right. Yeah. I think um, this one has the girls got really, you know, this yeah. album has more of that than actually Back in Black does. Back in Black has it. But this one, this album, it's all over the place. And uh, I love the, the, and it's something ACDC didn't entirely get from Mutt Lang. Um, They obviously had it on Dirty Deeds as well, you know, uh, which was before this. So I think they had um, what they refined it with him. And I think he maybe learned something from them and took it to Def Leppard and just took it to the extreme with them. But this is a great song too. Yeah. Yeah. The next song is Walk All Over You, a good, solid song. I, I mean, I, I love every song in this album. This is not my, particularly my favorite, though. Um, touch Too Much. is Before just, you go into Touch Too Much, I think one of the things with the gang vocals on Walk All Over You yeah. is imagine this woman, and then there's Bon Scott, and he's saying, I'm going to walk all over you, and how terrified she must be of this. Yeah. But then you have the rest of ACDC come in, 
and they sing it too. <laughs> yeah. Like you're just running in terror. Like to yeah. me, that's what I think of. Cause it is, you know, we could talk about the misogyny of this band because it's huge. Yeah. Um, you know, I think back in black is actually in some ways worse. Uh, but, but it's like, yeah, this song is, is, um, it's creepy, but it's it's cool because too. I love the fast riff of this song and the way Bon Scott sings the vocals on the fast parts yeah. is really cool. And then it slows down. It's pretty dynamic. It is. I, and again, I love the song, but you know, got to pick, got to pick our parts. Yeah, here, we right? can't we can't spend five hours. Maybe we'll spend four. We'll see. Yeah. But um, yeah, we'll probably break our record at this one. But I think yeah, you can. I did the same. I it was tough for me too. I wanted to play clips from everything, but you 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 can't really do that. Yeah. The next song is Touch Too Much, which is one of my favorite songs on this album. Um, I think just the sound, the, the vocal hooks. Um, let me just play a little bit of it so you get the sense of it if you haven't heard it for a while. You get the idea there. Ironically, they didn't like this song that much. That's crazy. Uh, His song is so good. It's so good. I agree. Def Leppard liked this song because yeah. they fucking ripped it off on every fucking thing they did after it. Yeah. Listen to High and Dry, like the backup vocals too. Like the, it sounds like Def Leppard and even the bow, now, 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 and the riff. Of course, Def Leppard owes a ton to ACDC, yeah. as do many bands, but they're. Well, and and they most. readily admit that too, by the way. Yeah, which yeah it's true. Um, the lyric on the, I knew he was making love when he's the, the effect on his voice. I, I can't, I'm not even going to torture our listeners with my impression of that, but just an incredible song. I love this song too. The next song beating around uh, the bush. Don't, don't, yeah. don't skip over this one. Cause we got to talk. You got to talk about the lyrics, dude. Okay. I want to talk about the beginning because I think Bon Scott is almost like a fucking Bukowski esque poet like he's his lyrics are basic and silly but it's just the way he dramatizes things like i get chills when he says it's one of it was one of those nights when you turn out the lights and everything comes into view like he just so sinister creepy and sinister yeah yeah and then of course you gotta you gotta talk about I think you have your notes here. I'm not, I'm not going to take over your, your spotlight with this lyric. Yeah. The, where, uh, lyric the, the woman song. has a body like my <laughs> Venus with no arms. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. The, the, she, uh, um, well, she's, uh, look like an angel smiling with sin, the body of Venus with arms. I mean, yeah. that's like a 12 year old. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> it's also fucking, <laughs> it's also fucking awesome. It's totally awesome. Yeah. Anyway, the, 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 yeah, the, you're right. I mean, the lyrics here are pretty, pretty amazing. Um, I, I do like the ones you called out. I like all of them. You know, it's hard to to pull out the 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 next song, "Beating Around the Bush." 
Okay, so the opening of this song, if the guitar sounds familiar, it's almost note for note. The rhythm is slightly different. The cadence is different. Is oh well, Peter Green, a Fleetwood. I Mac. totally didn't notice that, but you're 100 right. Yeah, it's the exact yeah. same riff, uh, basically, but it's a great riff. So if you're going to rip something off, you might as well do that. Let me just play it a little bit here. ever been anything <laughs> so nasty and so perfect in rock than that yeah i i so mean good. that is so fucking good and the way he, <laughs> the, i mean it's but you know okay the lyrics are obviously a double entendre and, and, and kind of the juvenile sex lyrics that we get with acdc that's uh, that's what you get but just the way he says beating around the bush at the end i i just think encapsulates everything great about this band and bond scott in my opinion so I love this True. song. I love this totally song agree. so much. Um, Shot Down in Flames. Uh, I'm going to play a little clip of that real quick. Okay, so yeah. maybe, you know, intimid- intimating that a woman is a prostitute isn't the best way to pick her up. Just saying, <laughs> like, that's maybe not going yeah. to uh, uh, work there. But anyway, great song. And you can kind of get the sense of Bond's uh, approach with the ladies. Uh, and uh, I guess it worked for him. That and the stick of broccoli. Um, okay, the next song is Get It Hot. Another good song. If You Want Blood, a famous song. Everyone knows that one. Um the next song after that is Love Hungry Man, which I mean, sort of makes everybody's list of the worst song on the album. I don't disagree, 
Um, you know, I, I, people point to this as being the rock and roll light noise pollution uh, equivalent from back in black, which I think you disagree. I, I disagree. I think that song's, I'll, I'll talk about that during my okay. section, but the, I do like this song's a, a grower on me. Like at first I agreed. I, I almost didn't even like night prowler that I feel like the album petered off. Cause I like that intensity, like get it hot is like a minor song, but it keeps the momentum. Yeah. You know, it's like, and it's, it's, and, and then if you want blood is, I think is a fucking masterpiece, but, um, I love the, the, the lyrics and everything, but love hungry. Obviously I love night prowler now, but love hungry man. I like the baseline and stuff. It's kind of funky. Um, and it's unique, you know, I think it works. Um, but yeah, probably my least favorite on the album too, um, of all of them. I just don't think it stands out as much as the standout tracks. Yeah. And it doesn't have the momentum of something like Get It Hot, you know? Anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. And then lastly, the 10th and final song of this album, the famous Night Prowler. Um, you know, this album is really dark. It, it's tense. It's creepy. Um, you know, he he's talking about sort of being a, a murderer, right? And, and murdering people in their sleep. Um, the, the music is slow. and it's, I, I mean, it's just nasty and powerful and grisly and... All that. And then at the end, he does a Mork and Bindi thing, which is kind of funny. <laughs> that Chazbot Nanu Nanu thing, which is which is weird. Musically, it sounds a lot. I don't know if you've noticed this on Dirty Deeds Ride On. It's it's almost the same song. Oh, yeah. In, in some ways. Let me play a little bit of Night Prowler for those. Great, right? I mean, yeah. the way he sings and you don't feel the steel till it's hanging out your back is especially haunting. And something I thought about a lot when, uh, you know, all, all the night uh, stalker things were happening, which I'll get into in a minute here. Um, this album was released on uh, July 27th, 1979. They went on tour um, for this album. They were in England in early January uh, 1980. In mid-February 1980, he uh, was on the, an ACDC played uh, Touch Too Much on the BBC show Top of the Pops. And uh, a couple days uh, later, he was found dead, uh, choking, having choked on his own vomit, as we, as we heard. Just completely tragic to, to lose somebody of this sort of talent and what this band could have done, uh, you know, with Bond, not you know, and you'll talk about what they did right after. But one one thing I forgot to mention during my personal history that I just want to throw in here is that after, you know, the popularity of Back in Black, they also released a film called Let There Be Rock um, to theaters. You know, it yeah. was it was released to theaters. And I remember my friend Joe went and saw it. I did not see it at the time. I've seen it since. 
Um, but it is it was recorded during this period, right? So it's Highway to Hell era Bon Scott live. But again, it was another thing like Dirty Deeds to capitalize on it. And it's pretty great. I mean, they're really, they were really good live. Bon Scott's a really good live singer. Um, you know, they were, they were amazing. So I just wanted to throw that in because I forgot to mention that that was a big deal at the time that I really wanted to see it. And I just missed it. It wasn't in the theater for more than a minute because, you know, it's like a rock concert film. They didn't yeah. really keep those in the theater that long. It wasn't, didn't make that much money, but I just want to throw that in. Yeah. And I don't even remember that. So that's how, you know, little time it spent in the theater, but yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay. So we talked about the night stalker, Richard Ramirez. Um, he killed, uh, dozens of people, I think between June 1984 and August, 1985. Um, the song night prowler became associated with him. Um, he, you know, he was known as the night stalker. The song was night prowler. Uh, Slip talked about the ACDC hat. He left at uh, one of the, the crime scenes. Uh, Ramirez, uh, being the gem of humanity that uh, he was, he's, he's dead now. Good. Um, he uh, shouted, Hail Satan. He had a pentagram carved into his palm, 666 on it, all that kind of stuff. It just brought a lot. I mean, this nut job and his, you know, I guess he had an ACDC hat like about 20 million people did. But um, it brought a lot of bad publicity to ACDC. And, you know, they were even saying on like behind the music that, uh, you know, they're not really into this connotation, obviously. And, and Night Prowler's not even about murder. It's about some guy sneaking into his girlfriend's bedroom. But I mean, unless, uh, you know, Bob well, the really, ste- yeah. Steel, yeah, it's like the steel hanging out your back is not really probably unless you're really into some kinky games. Uh, it's not, doesn't really jive with that, right? We should also mention another thing I forgot in my personal history that I'm sure you would remember as well. Remember we talked about Kiss and then there was this whole controversy where Christians said their name standard for, uh, stood for Night and Satan's Service. Yeah. Well, ACDC had Antichrist Devil's Child. Like yeah. how stupid is, like yeah, some stupid, stupid guy thought of that. But it was like, ACDC is, even though they talk about hell and, and things like that, and they mention Satan in the song I'm going to talk about, they, they just don't really, they're more of a party and drinking and rock. They, they sing about sex, sex and rock and roll, not even drugs, except for alcohol. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're much more of a party band, but this, yeah, I mean, from the band's perspective at this time, you know, Richard Ramirez was never really interviewed directly about being influenced by Night Prowler, even though like it's hard to argue that it like Jeff mentioned earlier on, it really does track with what he did. It was that kind of thing. He was, he would sneak into people's house, find open doors and break into people's houses and, uh, you know, attack them and rape the women and all this. And it kind of seems like the song's lyrics. So there's no doubt he knew the song if he was a fan, but it's all hearsay as to whether he was influenced by that's the band's perspective too. And I'm sure they want to downplay that, you know, yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, but nut jobs could be horribly influenced by, I want to hold your hand. Right. It's true. Uh, so um, anyway, so that was the Richard Ramirez part of it. It just was a big deal uh, for us in Southern California at that time. Um, just is every night on the news, there'd be another horrible, you know, seemed like another horrible murder. People were terrified and it's all fed into that. And the association with, with this abandoned album was 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 real association in at least the public's mind, but in, you know, like we just said, not shouldn't be. Um, the music, all right. As I said before, I think there, there's never been a band 
where the singer and the music are so intermeshed perfectly. And this album just brings it to the absolute heights. Um, it, this album, it's raw, it's filthy, it's nasty, it's puerile, feral, 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 mm -hmm. basic. And I also think this is completely brilliant. The cover is amazing. And the thing about the cover that confused me for a long time is I wanted Angus to be Bond because I wanted that voice to come out of that devil and not the guy who's kind of smiling off to the side. It just never made sense to me. Like, dude, this is everybody. Everybody had this in common. My thing was I knew about Angus in the school uniform. So I kind of knew Angus was the guy with the devil's tail. But I thought Malcolm was Bond. Because he's got that same kind of mongrel yeah. face. Yeah. <laughs> that same kind of angry, mongrelly face that Angus has. And yeah. then Bond is just like this. He seems like he's the bass player or something. They obviously yeah. clip him. And who would who would have thought that the, actually the most sinister guy in the band is little Phil Rudd standing there? Yeah. Uh, you know, as we'll talk about later. But but yeah, I totally everybody had that same opinion. Like that's Bond Scott, that's that voice. Yeah. That kind of smiling, normal looking dude. Yeah. Who's laughing know? off to the side yeah. you know, basically um so anyway that that was like for years i just and somebody told me you know like no no, no bon scott's that guy i'm like no, no it can't be it can't be it has to be the guy in the middle who looks like the devil with that voice but it, alas it was not okay the influence of, of bon scott in this era of of the band i i think um and beyond but like um the uh in 1978 acdc toured with aerosmith and uh, at, they played at the Forum in L.A., and a 15-year-old kid named uh, James Hetfield was in the audience, and he just was mesmerized by ACDC. He was an Aerosmith fan. That's why he went to the show, but uh, came away just completely enamored with ACDC. Um, even uh, Gene Simmons realized, you know, say what you want about Gene Simmons, and I'll say a lot of really negative things about him, but he did recognize talent. I mean, he was an early advocate, obviously, for Van Halen in a big way. A very, very big way. And he recognized pretty early on uh, that, you know, Bon Scott was pretty special and um, just the voice was incredible and there was talent there um, and even remarked at the time. Um, the, uh, the other thing I wanted to say on the, um, in 1978, they played Day, Day on the Green in, in, at Oakland Coliseum, headlined by Aerosmith. Uh, Foreigner was there, Pat Travers, uh, as you've talked about, Van Halen was on that. And uh, Eddie Van Halen was actually sort of like, oh, my God, these guys are great. Like he looked at Angus and was just sort of mesmerized uh, by him, um, which is pretty amazing because, you know, I, Eddie Van Halen in terms of technical abilities at the other end of the spectrum there. But um, certainly Angus, Angus Young is just an incredible player of doing what he does. Um, Thin Lizzy was also uh, played with them uh, in Cleveland. And Gary Moore was at the band that time. And Gary Moore, no slouch on guitar himself, was just like, man, they blew us off the stage. And they fucking killed us. That's how good they were. Um, we mentioned uh, Def Leppard, uh, Joe Elliott, watching them early on, just the energy that they had. Bon Scott, just a master showman. You know, he says, you know, his shirt, his shirt was off after three songs. He was leaping around on the stage. Um, just a lot of energy. Uh, you know, just incredible dude. And he tells a story about how um, he says something like, you know, meeting your heroes can be disappointing. Um, but Bond, he was great to them really early on. Uh, he, he says uh, he wasn't a pretentious prick. And at this point, they had gotten pretty popular um, right at the height before he died. He was a natural talent. 
he, there's always a sparkle in his eye and a shit-eating grin on his face. I think that's a perfect uh, description. Um, he was at a moment in his life when every light was green. One night he walked into a bar in his cut-off denim jacket and saw we, early Def Leppard, had no money. He stuck a tenor in my hand and said, here, buy yourselves a drink. Give it, give it me back later. See you down the road. And, you know, that's just the kind of guy he was. Um, so there you go. Uh, final thoughts here, and then I'll turn it over. I, you know, what can I say about this album I haven't already? I think it's just simply one of the best albums in rock history, flat out, period. Um, it's ACDC doing what they do best. It's Bon Scott at his absolute peak. And I, you know, if Satan were a singer in a rock band, he'd sound like Bon Scott, only Satan wouldn't be as menacing. That's how, you know, good Bon Scott is. Um, why this is better than Black and Black, Back in Black, yeah, it's a tough, right? Like, to me, this one's raw, nastier, less polished, certainly less for Mutt, polished and Mutt. I love Back in Black. I think it's a great, great album, as you'll talk about. But the voice of Bon Scott is just so unique and perfect for the mood, the music, the vibe. And this album in particular, right? And I just think there are very, very few things that can match its all-time magic and greatness. So that's why I think uh, Highway to Hell is better. So I'll turn it over to you. Agree. I agree. But uh, I'm going to advocate for Back in Black in a minute um, over over Highway to Hell. It's a tough one. Um, I'm still waffling here. But anyway, before I do that, let's go a little bit into history. So I should we should mention that Highway to Hell was their first real breakout success in the United States. It charted at uh, number 17 and it eventually was seven times platinum. So it is their second biggest selling album next to Back in Black. Um, now, the death of Bon Scott, right? So one of the one of the questions is what Bon Scott actually did on Back in Black. Now, if you go on YouTube, you'll find these videos saying, Bon Scott sings Back in Black. Those are fake, yeah. right? Bon, Back in Black is a song that is a memorial to Bon Scott, that was the lyrics were written by Brian Johnson. So Bon Scott had nothing to do with that whatsoever. Um, it actually doesn't really make sense that he would. Um, but Scott did. There is some controversy as to what he might have contributed because they were already starting to work on the album when he was still alive. So in February 15, 1980, Scott did attend a session uh, that the band was. The band had a session, and they were they were working on what would become the songs "Have a Drink on Me" and "Let Me Put My Love Into You." Um, but he only <laughs> played drums. He didn't. He didn't contribute any vocals or lyrics. Even though "Let Me Put My Love Into You" is very Bon Scott uh, as far as a title goes. Um, you know, he he just played drums because he was also a drummer. So they just kind of jammed. Um, but longtime girlfriend Silver Smith. Uh, before she died in 2016, had said that she always thought the she always heard that the lyrics to "You Shook Me All Night Long" uh, were written by Bon Scott. Uh, and Angus has been weirdly contradictory about this. Like, yeah, he wrote some of the lyrics, or he didn't. It's funny as when we'll talk about that song. I actually think that's a, there's a good case for Bon Scott having written that, given the comparing it to the other lyrics written by Brian Johnson on the album. But Brian Johnson does indicate in his autobiography that he did write it um, and that it had to do with his love of cars, which we'll get into a little bit. Um, so in 1980, February 1980, Bon Scott had gone to this uh, club called The Music Machine and he had fallen asleep in his friend's car, right? And then later that night, like early in the morning hours of February 19, he was discovered by his friend and pronounced dead on arrival at King's College Hospital. Uh, there was a rumor that he was doing heroin at the time, 
but the cause of death was ruled by the uh, coroner as acute alcohol poisoning. And I guess in the Wikipedia, they don't really say about the vomiting, but I, I've always heard that that's how he died, similar to John Bonham um, yeah. around the same time. Now, Jimmy AC- too, right? Jimi Hendrix, uh, but Jimi Hendrix was on pills, but yeah, he had, he had, he had the same thing, choking on his own vomit. Um, Mama AC Cass D- too? No, I am sandwich. Did she? Oh, oh that's yeah. what Austin Powers said. Anyway. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, ACDC uh, were going to disband, uh, but Scott's parents actually encouraged them to, uh, Ted and Isa, his parent, mother, uh, father and mother had encouraged them to continue. I'll have more to say about this because I actually kind of have a beef about the whole band breaking up when someone dies of their own design. Um, especially because ACD, well, I'll just say it now. I think it's, I think it's good that ACDC continued. I don't think a Bon Scott essentially killed himself with his recklessness and they would have been screwed. They were so young, right. you know, they had so much more to go. And it, it seems kind of callous that they turned it around so fast. Cause I mean, really, you know, just in a few months back in black came out. I mean, it was really fast. That's what's so crazy, especially when Jeff talked about the meticulousness of Highway to Hell. It's like how urgent it was for them to get this out and get a new singer and all this. But it's like they were really young. Now, Led Zeppelin, when John Bonham died, they broke up. But I think Led Zeppelin was on their last legs anyway. Yeah, if you look definitely. at the downturn in quality of their output, I mean, I love In Through the Outdoor, but it lets, it's it's no Led Zeppelin 4, you know, or Physical Graffiti. Um, I think, I think, um, they were kind of ready to break up and, but ACDC was just getting started. You know, it was just so tragic, especially in the U S right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think bond would have wanted them to quit either. As his parents said, I think, I think, look, he lived the life, he lived his life the way he, he lived it and he is responsible for it. So they shouldn't have to, just because he had some kind of crazy death wish. I don't think they should have had to quit. It kind of gets me mad when people are like, Oh, well, we have to give it up now. Um, even though they lost this integral part of their sound. And I'm going to argue that other than Back in Black, there's no comparison between the two. Uh, Back in Black is a freak magical thing. Uh, that's a one-off. But I'll get into that. And the reason it's a one-off, and the reason is they got the perfect replacement, at least for one album, Brian Johnson. So Brian Johnson was not much younger than Bon Scott. He was born October 5th, 1947. He grew up in... Dunstan County, Durham, which is and uh, and around the area of Newcastle, which is really northern England, so it's almost like he was Scottish. Um, he sounds it. Yeah, he has that accent, right? That thick yeah. northern accent. He's um, you know, he started out as a kid performing in shows with the UK Scouts, kind of like the Boy Scouts. They would do these shows, and he it was noticed that he had a really powerful voice at a young age. Um, as he grew up, you know, he went to high school, and after high school, he joined the um the territorial army and was a parachuter jumping out of planes. Uh, he started forming bands around this time. The f- fucking names of these bands, the Gobi desert canoe club was one. <laughs> well, I mean, is that worse than the starlight vocal band or. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's kind of clever. In its own goofy way. He had seen someone have a t-shirt t-shirt with that on. And it was kind of like a clever thing. So they did. And then this one called the Jasper heart band. And that band actually later, uh, most of the members of that band would form Jordy. Uh, and Jordy is a word that is used to describe people from Newcastle in kind of almost a pejorative way by people yeah. from other parts of England. Like he's a real Jordy. And they actually did a traditional folk song, like a cover of a folk song that um, 
Uh, I forget the name of it, but it, it had Jordy in the title. And they were kind of like rock, but kind of like Slade and Elf, kind of that honky tonk rock, you know, not really hard rock like ACDC. Um, they had kind of a ballad song that became a top 10 UK hit all because of you. But they peaked really early. I guess the only other notable song they did was a cover of House of the Rising Sun. That's pretty cool just because Brian Johnson's vocals are awesome on it. But they you know, they released a series of albums in the early to mid seventies. Hope you like it. Don't be fooled by the name. So hope you like it. 1973. Don't be fooled by na- the name. 1974 save the world, 1976. And then there was another one released in 78, which is just a compilation of unreleased stuff called no good woman. None were really successful after that first top 10 hit. So they didn't really do much. Um, in the mid seventies, you know, around 72, 73, uh, they toured with, uh, Fang. Uh, Bon Scott's band that was originally called Fraternity had done a tour of the UK and they opened up for Geordie. And um, during this time, they kind of met and Bon yeah. Scott was watching a show with Geordie. And I guess he was really impressed by Brian Johnson's vocals and actually mentioned it to Angus when he came back uh, to ACDC. When he when he joined ACDC, he's all, oh, yeah, that guy, this band Geordie, this guy was amazing. He reminded me of Little Richard. He could really sing high and really scream. Um, so during but, this time, but by the way, I heard Brian Johnson say while he was performing during that time, he had appendicitis and he kept like keeling over from it. And oh, yeah, I didn't mention that. Yeah, that's right. He killed over from the appendicitis and Bon Scott thought that was part of his act. Yeah, that, that was his yeah. little Richard thing, which is which is uh, kind of funny in a way. Right. Yeah. But it's kind of interesting that he would mention him and he would remember him. It's almost kind of like this was fate in a weird way. Um, so he was the record company was called Red Bus Records that ran Jordy uh, that, that that Jordy was on. And they were kind of weirdly corrupt, like they, you know, Red Bus, who's ever heard of that kind of this uh, uh, sketchy business. And they had they had like gotten a house for Brian Johnson, like a cheap kind of house. And all of a sudden around 76, he noticed they weren't paying the mortgage anymore. They were paying for him. And so he was like, guys came to his house and started trying to repossess all his shit. Um, and kick him out of the house. So he had to actually had to go to court and, you know, the judge was sympathetic, but he had to, and he had to move back in with his parents and had to make some kind of living to pay off this mortgage he owed. Um, and so he started this, he, he originally got a job replacing windows and cars, and then he got really good at it. So he started his own business of doing that. And also, uh, putting on this vinyl car roofing that was kind of trendy in the late seventies. Um, and, and during this time, he he reformed Jordy as Jordy Two, very strange name, but they kind of played local gigs and they kind of were getting popular. And one of their signature songs was a cover of Whole Lot of Rosie. Hmm. And he had also seen ACDC by this time and loved them, so that's one of the reasons he did a uh, Whole Lot of Rosie. And during this time, he started donning this cap he would wear forever, right? He still wears it now. I mean, the reason is... I think his hair is attached to it now, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's probably part of the hat, right? Yeah. But during this time, he had kind of long, longish hair, um, almost like a curly mullet kind of hairstyle. And he put the hat... up. The reason he wore the hat is he would sweat during the gigs and he would kind of wipe his sweat off with his arm. And his arm all had this t- these tiny microscopic pieces of glass and shit in it from him working all day on these windows, like shaving off these car windows. So he would get all bruised and bloody on his head so the guy just said yeah this is the story he tells and so he just said why don't you just put this hat on and the hat kept him from the sweat from dripping down his face so he it just became his signature look um so 
Yeah. So, so, I mean, this is at the point where he's kind of at just working this regular gig, just kind of make it. Um, and he gets this call, uh, to, you know, and it's funny because another guy he was friends with who was part of another band that was kind of a has-been was auditioning for Rainbow uh, after Ronnie James Dio quit. And I guess Brian Johnson got a call from them as well, but they wanted him to like travel somewhere or do something. You know, he just, it just didn't sound good to him. But he also got a call from um, uh, ACDC's new manager at the time. Uh, and And he basically thought it was a prank call. Like he didn't believe it. Um, and he was, you know, he had heard that some other guy got the gig or whatever, but he did this audition on March 25th, 1980. And they got together in, um, England and played whole lot of Rosie together. And I can Tina Turner's Nutfish city limits. And they also did a very rough version of back in black where the band just kind of played the riff and Brian Johnson improvised back in black. I hit the sack. That's all. He just repeated that over and over again. So it wasn't lyrics. Um, and so he got the job. So, uh, you know, obviously the lineup had changed. So now we're dealing with uh, uh, the same lineup Jeff mentioned, but Brian Johnson's on lead vocals. And of course, Mutt Lang is still the producer, right? So initial uh, rehearsals and songwriting began at London's Easy Hire Studios. They originally wanted to use the Stockholm Studios, but of course it was unavailable due to ABBA using it. So they had to move to another, they decided to move to another studio, a new studio that had just been built called Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas. Um, and it's funny the because- the police used that a lot, didn't they? The police had just recorded there. Okay. Yeah. So the police had recorded Zenyatta Modata there. Yeah. All right. And so they had used it. And then um, what's funny is they had to share the studio with the Talking Heads who were recording another great album from 1980, Remain in Light during the time. Nice. But it's funny because Brian Johnson has a lot of stories about, you know, them interacting with the Talking Heads. Like at one point he was uh, in a bar playing pool with David Byrne, who was kind of mystified by his whole, you know, Jordy persona. Uh, you know, it's just like you get this weird, like spectrumy guy with this kind of old bloke, you know, yeah. but they really got along well with Chris Franz and Tina Wymouth. And in fact, one day when um, Cliff Williams and Phil Rudd were out, you know, galvanding in the woods and had gotten lost, uh, Chris Franz and Tina Wymouth sat in with ACDC and jam with them, which That's I love awesome. that story. Yeah. yeah. So they got, they got along with them. Uh, during this time, there was a total crime wave in the Bahamas. Uh, they're actually, uh, a few months before Robert Palmer was down there and he had had a home invasion. So they had these harpoons as weapons that they would keep at their place. Um, there were also tropical storms, which we'll talk about when we talk about the lyrics to hells and bells, because tales bells, because that was the inspiration. Um, now, as far as the recording, it doesn't seem quite as tortured as the recording for highway to hell. And I think part of this is they had already come to respect Lang, and then they just got things done so quickly. I mean, it took only seven weeks for them to record this. That's now, Brian Johnson, I know it's really insane. It's almost like Bon Scott, the you know, gave them power from from the depths of hell or something. I don't know, but um, they had a stick of broccoli. Yeah, maybe his magic stick of broccoli. I don't know, but what's interesting is uh, the one thing that Brian Johnson does say is that Lang really pushed him to sing super, super high, like higher than he'd ever sung. And we'll talk about that, especially on Shake a Leg. I mean, he goes so high on that song uh, and it's really crazy. Um, and he's never really hit those peaks again. Even on the next album where he sounds pretty close to Back in Black, it's much more low key. 
on For Those About to Rock. Um, and Angus got this guitar sound, which I think is one of the reasons I kind of think Back in Black is the winner here. Uh, it, from this uh, setup called the Schaefer Vega Diversity System, a wireless rig and signal booster um, that would later become an actual product. Uh, that was kind of an experimental thing. And then they did this weird thing where I guess they faced the cabinets out into the hallway to get an echoey sound on some songs. Um, and then, of course, one of the things that took the longest on the album was they wanted an actual bell for Hell's Bells. And there's a whole saga there that I'm going to talk about now. But that that took the time until the release. But it was it was it seemed like, yeah, it was intense with Mutt Lang. But I think they had taken the lessons they learned on Highway to Hell. I really don't think this album would have been possible without the lessons they learned on Highway to Hell. Um, and they'd taken those and Mutt Lang had already been used to working with them and they'd already been used to, to taking his advice, right? So um, at any rate, so let's go into the song. So first, let's play this clip from Hell's Bells. Love yeah. this song. So great. So what's interesting about this song too is I was like wanting to record the beginning, but the beginning of this song is one minute and 25 seconds of just music. And it just builds, right? Yeah. It's long. It's like, an, it's almost, it's a really epic track. Um, and it establishes this really somber funereal mood that, that really isn't, I think the rest of the album is more celebratory, but you could tell this is like, an homage to Bon Scott in a way, in a really dark way. And it's almost like a sequel to Highway to Hell. Like he made, okay, Bon, you made it to hell. Cause you were saying Highway to Hell is much more about the grueling touring, but there is the lyric. My friends are going to be there too. Yeah. You know, like I'm going to hell and I'm happy with it. And it's like, this song's like, well, you made it. You're only young, but you're going to die. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's kind of about Bon Scott. This whole album is permeated with, Bon Scott. Like it's, it's, it's a, almost a concept album about him in a way. Um, and this song is no exception. Obviously the ominous lyrics, rolling thunder, pouring rain, I'm coming on like a hurricane was influenced by the weather, right? There was, there, it was storming. And, and so Brian uh, Johnson, you know, I mean, the, another tribute to him, he had to come up with these lyrics really quickly. So not all of them work, but I think this album, this song really works. Like it really sets that mood. It's really heavy. If you just I think play like a half a second of that bell at yeah. the beginning, you know what it is. Oh, yeah. Right? Like it's so iconic too. Yes. I think it's very influenced by the song Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath because it has that, you know, that song has rain and bells and it's ominous and it's much more doomy and slower. 
But I think this is kind of as doomy and slow as ACD. I mean, they get slow. They have like for those about to rock, but that's more of an anthemic concert thing. This is like a doom dark song, you know, a doomy dark song. But about the bell. So so one of the things that took the longest with the album is they really wanted this custom made bell, which they still use to this day. It's a bell that has ACDC Hell's Bells uh, uh, engraved into it. And it was custom made. It was a one-ton bell custom made by John Taylor Bell Founders and uh, Lorborough, England, uh, but it was taking too long to make. So what they decided to do was go to this church that had a two-ton bell and record that. But the problem is there were all these, uh, they put mics around it, and the problem was there are all these birds that mm. were flying around, so they were kind of interfering with it. They didn't so have the was, bell ringers from Midsummer. That's they right. They needed they needed the bell ringers. That's right. Um, but anyway, they um, but they ended up using some of that the two-tone bell, and they've combined it with the sounds of the one-tone bell and slowed it down. Um, really interesting, right? And uh, yeah, it's just a great song. I think it's a really interesting way to start off an album that's mostly a celebratory album with a really dark funereal song uh, that's kind of stands out in their catalog as unique, you know? And I think it's great. And I love his vocals. I love the lyrics. Okay, the next song is my second favorite song on the album. This is Shoot to Thrill. Let's play a clip of this. So that uh, is Shoot to Thrill, second song on the album. Obviously, the lyrics are very much uh, a metaphor. Um, you know, it's it's uh, pretty pretty obvious what it is, what his trigger is, and what he's shooting. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's it, he's got like gun gun his and dick gun, metaphors. Right? Yeah, gun and dick metaphors are all over this album. Uh, but what I really like about this song, and what I didn't even think about, is it's like five minutes long. It's never boring. <laughs> Like it's got all these changes. I love the sliding of the guitar. It's very similar to uh, "Shot Down in Flames," which is, of course, shot down. You know, shooting, um, but it's got the same kind of pick slides up and down the neck that I, I love. And of course, Johnson's vocals are just amazing here. Um, and I think he's got this incredible sense of rhythm. And one of the things that he does on a lot of the songs that was also something Lang pushed him on is to fill in to to constantly be singing and shifting you know it's almost like he has to hold hold the breath because there's so many words you know he just goes from verse to chorus without a break you know on a lot of these songs and i think it it really distinguishes him from bon scott who's also got an amazing sense of rhythm you know on on all the songs we mentioned on highway to hell but i think johnson maybe it's turned up a little bit i don't know it's this song's one of my favorites. I've just always thought it really rocked. And I love the way Hell's Bell sh- goes into this. It's it's a contrast because now we're we're it's kind of adrenaline based and not dark. You know, it's like we're starting to get more lively here. Um, the next song I'm not going to play a clip from. What do you do for money, honey? This was originally a title that George Young came up with during the Powerage section, the sessions that they never used. Um, this is just good old 
ACDC misogyny, but I don't think it has quite the poetry of Bon Scott. Um, I think, um, you know, it's, uh, I love again, the rhythmic sense, you know, and I'll talk about that with back in black, which is almost like a rap song in some ways, uh, that's so rhythmic oriented, but I love the, the line you're always pushing, shoving, uh, you're always, yeah, you're always pushing, shoving, satisfied with nothing. You bitch, you must be getting old. I love that rhythmic yeah. uh, sense he has. And again, some of these songs that are, I think are slightly lesser than the absolute classics on the album, like Hell's Bells and Shoot to Thrill, I would include as absolute classics. They just keep the momentum going. Like they're just, I just, I love the chorus of this where, you know, it's just, he's singing really high and they're singing with him. This is kind of that gang gang style vocals. And it just keeps the momentum going on the album. Like the album just is so consistent sounding with only kind of the slower songs at the end of each side. Um, And uh, well, obviously hell's bell starts out slow back in black is more mid paced, but then the middle songs are all kind of adrenaline songs. And so I feel like it keeps the momentum of the album going, even though I don't think it's an out and out classic in the sense of the other ones, kind of like get it hot. I, I put this on the same plane as that. I agree. Okay. So we'll talk more about the whole difference between Bon Scott lyrics and Brian Johnson lyrics. Uh, I think this next song is the worst song on the album in my mind, given the dog bone. I like it musically. It's fun. Uh, but I fucking hate the words to this song. I think it, I think it's beyond Spinal Tap. Um, Let me put my love into you rivals it, but that song has more going for it. This song is really she's using her head again. I I I every time I hear that I cringe and just given the dog. It's so dumb. Like a three year old would think of this. You know, yeah. it's like, but I but it's got the gang vocals. It's got momentum musically. But I mean, um, the lyrics. Some of the lyrics she take you down easy going down to her knees, uh, uh, going down to the devil, down, down to 90 degrees. Ah, she blowing me away till my ammunition is dry. (laughs) She's using her head again. Again, we have the gun dick metaphor. It's like, it's, it's almost like, look, some of these songs, I think Brian Johnson spent some time on. I think he spent all of like two seconds on this fucking song. Again, it, 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 as I'm listening to the album, I enjoy it because it just keeps the momentum going. It rocks. You know, all the guitar riffs are great. Again, we we should talk about Malcolm's contribution too because he's kind of like the James Hetfield of this band. He's the riff master. You know, a lot of what he does is the riffs. Right. Um, he's a rhythm player, and AC, and obviously Angus is the great soloer. Um, I would argue that James Hetfield is the Angus and Malcolm of that band because he, I think he's a better soloer than, than Kirk Hammett too. I agree too. I've uh, heard you yeah, say on this very, I think, I think I actually show. was influenced by your opinion. And I yeah. thought about, I think you told me that and I was like, yeah, yeah Jeff's totally right. He's a better guitarist all around. I agree. Even though Kirk, Kirk Hammett, Hammett is technically, so boring as a guitarist. Yeah. So boring. When we'll we get, get to our that. Metallica yeah. episode, we'll, we'll talk about that, but okay. So let me put my love into you. I'm not going to, um, to uh, play this, but, but again, this uh, music was written again while Scott was alive, but whether he wrote the lyrics, I don't know. And I don't know if the title was thought of because like, it's such a gross title that I think it seems like Bon Scott could have come up with it. I can imagine him (laughs) saying this to a woman, like on their first date, you know, I uh, probably just meeting her, you know, after he asks her her price, you know, who knows? Um, But again, he he Brian Johnson sticks with the gun dick metaphor here. Um, and those reputations, 
blown to pieces with my artillery, he says. Um, another cringeworthy section is the kind of date rapey section of don't you struggle, don't you fight. Let me cut. Uh, don't you struggle? Don't don't you fight? Right? Because mm. um, it's it's your turn tonight and all that. It's like, but I love the way he sings it. It's almost conjuring up Bond because he sounds fucking nasty and evil. And I like the the song is catchy. I have it in. My, I have this song in my head a lot. I think it's really catchy. This was one back in the day I didn't like. Right? This and rock and roll ain't noise pollution were the two. I didn't like, I liked every, even given dog a bone. I thought was better. I like this song a lot now. I think it's really catchy. And I think it's, um, you know, even though it has the worst lyric, you know, I, I don't know you're using your head again. She's using her head again is, is up there, but let me cut your cake with my knife is, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's too dumb for spinal tap. Right. I mean, <laughs> well, maybe not, but to your point is still valid, right? Yeah. So I should also mention that, yeah, again, I'm going to say this is sort of a strike in Highway to Hell's favor because I really just think that these, you know, given the dog a bone in this, I think Von Scott would have come up with something much more clever. And even if he sang these lyrics, they would sound, I mean, I think Brian Johnson does a good job on that don't you struggle thing. But I think Bon Scott would be even more sleazy. I don't know. It would he just would do be... it with a wink in his eye that sort of yeah. makes it less gross and even more gross at the same time. I don't yeah. know. It's hard to. Brian Johnson is like angry and intense on this song. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't quite start, but I think it's in keeping with the album. Cause the one thing I think this album has is its intensity. It is, even when the band goes slow, there's an intensity to the performances. Uh, that I think is more than Highway to Hell for the most part, with a few exceptions. Um, okay, Back in Black. This is my favorite. I've got it, even though everyone's heard this a gajillion times, I got to play it because it's my favorite ACDC song of all time. badass i mean these vocals are brian johnson's crowning achievement in my mind i think the the notes he hits the way he sings it uh the rhythm is crazy i mean i think this song has been sampled a good a billion times by rap groups and i almost feel like he's rapping on this rapping and singing he almost at has the same trouble time. with it there there it's so complex yeah, he, he almost has trouble getting out all the air at times. I feel like on this, even though it's, it's totally great, he does it. it that, well, maybe live he doesn't. You know, I mean, it's yeah. like, and I even Axl Rose, like he when he will talk about him later, but um, you know, he doesn't quite. It, I I don't feel like live this ever sounded as good 
as in the in the studio. Um, and I think, yeah, he's trying to fit the words in, but I just love the rhythm is so original. I mean, there's really nothing quite like it. And the riff is insane. I mean, that just the different parts, the dent, dent, and then the burn, 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 burn. I mean, it's just really stands out to me and again it's always been my favorite song when i first heard it i listened to it um, uh, like when i first had this tape i just rewound and played this over and over again it's one of those songs i did that with you know what's um, really interesting about the way this was recorded too is it, i don't know we used to play around with it because the drums are in the left of the stereo oh like, yeah totally and i didn't the notice guitars that in the right and you you know you could play around or you know with your little balance and just only hear the drums and that was, you know, now it's trivial to do all this kind of shit. But, you know, back in the early 80s, it's like, oh, you could just hear the drums only. And I don't know, it was novel to us as kids. You know, it's funny. This is this is the eulogy to back to Bon Scott. This is the song that was explicitly dedicated to him. And the lyrics are defiant. Like, it's almost like defiant in the face of death. Like, yeah, I partied my ass off. So what? I fucking lived life to the fullest. Um, and I just love the lyrics about living fast and let loose from the, from the news. It's so, such an unlikely eulogy. I mean, it's not like a stupid ballad or whatever. ACDC has one ballad, uh, from the first album called love song. That's their only real ballad. And they regretted that immediately and you know, it just never did it again, which right. is something in their favor. Um, and you know, I just, I just love the words. I love, uh, you know, forget the hearse cause I'll never die. Uh, you know, it's just great. And abusing every one of them and running wild back. Oh, and I also love back in the back, back in the back of a Cadillac. That's almost like Bond's death scene. Yeah. You know, they're almost celebrating it in a way. It's so, it's so weird how, you know, that this is their eulogy to him in a way. Well, when um, you and said just, abusing every one of them, they're talking about his nine lives as a cat. Oh, yeah. Cat, oh, yeah I, yeah. I I didn't write uh, the lyrics down right in my notes. Yeah, right. Uh, cat, what is he? Uh, nine lives. Nine, nine lives. Cats. Cats life, eyes, nine cats, lives, abusing eye, every yeah. one of them uh, yeah. and running wild. And that, you know, it's a fucking great, a masterful lyric. Um, yeah, I just can't say enough about this song. It's I never get sick of it. It's my favorite of all time. Okay. The next song is, I think, a masterpiece. But when we talk about the anti, I'm going to talk about this later, about the burnout factor with Back in Black. This is the one song I probably never need to hear again. I agree. You shook me all night long. It's so overplayed. Um, now, Brian Johnson came up with these lyrics because of cars. So he loves cars. Actually, we'll talk about later how he lost his hearing. He was from race car driving, not from ACDC. Um, and he was also, you know, working on cars. So he said this was, you know, she was a fast machine. She kept her motor clean was a metaphor for a woman, right, in a car. Um, but what's interesting is these lyrics, when you compare them to like giving the dog a bone or honey, what do you do? What do you do for money, honey? Or even shake a leg. They really stand out as quite good lyrics, I think. And they seem like something Bon Scott might have written. So that theory could be true. I mean, I you know, this whole thing of made a meal out of me, uh, or no, uh, no, she's, uh, wanted no applause, just another course made a meal out of me and come back for more. Right. Or she told me to come, but I was already there. Yeah. That kind of metaphor is straight <laughs> out of like big balls. It seemed those lyrics seem like Bon Scott. It's almost like 
you know, in, in the part of um, uh, Touch Too Much, where he says, Bon Scott says she wanted it hard. She wanted it fast. She liked it done medium rare. Yeah. I mean, these seem more like Bon Scott lyrics. Now, it could be that Brian Johnson was thinking of Bon Scott or maybe Bon Scott possessed him, you know, uh, in, in when the storms were going on in the Bahamas and maybe they had some voodoo ritual with the lady there. I don't know. But it really, I would say that one theory is plausible to me just because the lyrics are a cut above some of the other sexy lyrics. Like, you know, Brian Johnson has never been that good at the kind of sexy ACDC lyrics uh, that Bon Scott was like, I mean, you look at shit like from fly on the wall, sink the pink. I mean, how dumb is that? You know, <laughs> I forgot about that. But, or fucking yeah. ball breaker. I don't know well, if they played this during the tour cover you in oil. Like the, these are terrible. Well, I mean, it's like That's spinal terrible. tap. This is like, I mean, it's like literally spinal tap, but this Sorry. song is like a notch of cleverness above that. Yeah, and I, I think Bon Scott in general. So <laughs> I think that could be plausible. Um, <laughs> Well, a sink tor- pink torpedo. I mean, that's that right. line from, from Spinal Tap, right? She yes. She fits me like a flesh tuxedo. I want to sink her with my or my pink torpedo, right? Right. I think, um, you know, this song was a, was actually a top 40 single, one of ACDC's few, uh, number 35. Uh, later, they made a really bad video uh, for it when they re-released the video as part of the Who Made Who uh, album. Um Again, the burnout factor with this song is extreme for me. It's hard for me. You know, I listened to it again because, and I, and I look, try to listen to it like I was first hearing it and I admire it. I still think it's great and super catchy, uh, but I'm just so sick of it. And then once Celine Dion fucking covered it, that kind of makes me cringe. (laughs) Every time I listen to it, I think of her version. Um, Okay. Have a drink on me. That just makes me want to vomit to be honest. So have a drink on me is fucking great but it's the weirdest song to have on an album that's dedicated to a guy who died from drinking too much i mean this is like sort of irony there right it is it is i mean um there's lyrics like i'm trying to walk a straight line on sour mash and cheap wine um i'm dizzy drunk and fighting uh on tequila white lightning and my favorite, yeah, so come on, have a good time and get blinded out of your mind. So don't worry about tomorrow. Take it today. Forget about the check. We'll get hell to pay. Great lyrics. But yeah, they're celebrating this act of getting completely drunk to the point where you die. When you choke uh, on your own vomit. As, you choke on your own vomit as, as a celebration of the guy who just died. I mean, I think there's something just amazing about that to me. <laughs> yeah. um, and again. You know, great riff, great gang vocals, have a drink on me, you know, and great lead from from Brian Johnson. Um, it, it's it's really a great song. I love this one. Uh, now, the next one, I think, is an underappreciated song on this album. Part of the reason I think it's underappreciated is I think it's kind of a ripoff of Beating Around the Bush. Like, it's that same kind of song. Yeah. But I do think... Uh, the guitar solo in this one is really worth highlighting when we talk a lot about the vocalist because we're comparing the two, but we got to talk about the band. And, you know, I feel like this is a dark horse. Now, as far as the vocals go, this is the highest Brian Johnson goes and he really hits the highs. And he said, this was really tough to sing. And they played this song exactly once live uh, when they first played after, I think one of their first shows they did in California, they played this song live, but they would never play it again, really. 
Uh, I think part of it is it's really hard to sing. Part of it is they just have so many songs they have to fit in. And this is kind of not one people highlight too much. Uh, I think he really reminds me of Robert Plant on this one at Robert Plant's peak, like maybe in 68, 69, when Robert Plant was going super high before he couldn't do that anymore. Um, and then again, you have the lyrics, wake the dead, you know, a funereal lyric. I'll talk a little bit more about the lyrics, but before that, I am going to, let's showcase Angus a little bit in this clip. Yeah, I mean, the vocals are insane and the guitar solo. I mean, he's so fast. I mean, he was just constantly practicing. That's what he'd do. Like the other band members, like when they'd go on tour in the 70s and 80s, they would just go out and party. He would just go back to his hotel room and just be practicing scales and shit. I mean, and and it really goes, I mean, he's not the most innovative guitarist in the world, but he's pretty fucking technically good, like super fast. And um, just his energy is crazy. Uh, at any rate, okay, let's move on to the last one. Um, uh, rock and roll ain't noise pollution. So this title was given to Brian Johnson to write lyrics for, uh, because it was something that Bond was known to have said. He was listening to, I forget what he was listening to, some record in his apartment building, and the neighbors complain, and he said this quote. So they <laughs> wanted to use it to dedicate it to him. Uh, and uh, the 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 song opens with this weird, almost kind of sermon by Brian Johnson that was completely improvised in the studio, you know, Hey there, all you middlemen, uh, throw away your fancy clothes, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, but this song again, like Jeff mentioned is a lot of people's least favorite, either this or let me put my love into you are kind of the ones people don't like as much. I really like this. It's really grown on me. I love the, the chorus, like, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about the future. I love that melody. Um, you know, forget about the past. It'll always be with us. Never going to die. You know, I just really like the chorus. It really grew on me, even though it's kind of this repetitive anthem. And I think it's a good way of finishing the album. And I love that it comes from a quote from, uh, you know, Scott, obviously. So what, so let's quickly go into a little bit of the history um, uh, past this album, because I want to wrap up by, talking about why this album is special in this history um, and why maybe, you know, Highway to Hell is special too. But I think this is the Brian Johnson album that really stands out, right? Now, obviously, um, when they released this, they wanted an all-black cover and the record company did not want that, but the Youngs insisted on it and got their wish. It was released in July, 1980. So between February, 1980, their singer dies. July, 1980, they not only have a new singer, but they have this incredible new album yeah. out. Uh, and it, 
is the second best-selling album of all time. Now, in the past, I said something about the Eagles' greatest hits being the best-selling. I saw that. I think it might be in the U.S. It's weird. But globally, Thriller towers over everything. It's like over 70 million. And it's funny because the Eagles have two in the top 10, which is Greatest Hits and Hotel California. But the second biggest by a 10 million albums or so is Back in Black. And it's it was on the charts uh, for a long time, right? Um, and I think it's still in the top 200. Uh, it it kind of left and then came back, but it's sold over 50 million worldwide as of this recording in 2023. Um, it was it only hit number four, interestingly enough, on the charts, but it stayed in the top 10 for 10 months. It was number one in Australia and the UK, obviously. I mentioned You Shook Me All Night Long, getting number 35. Uh, on the heels of this, they re-released Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, and that ended up sending, selling 6 million copies. Uh, for those about to rock was their follow-up recorded in 1981. And, um, that was their first and only number one for years. Uh, and it was 4 million sold 4 million copies, uh, which is kind of a really on the strength of back in black. I don't think anybody was buying this because of, uh, uh, the single or anything like that. And we salute you. Right. But the band worked again with Leia. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, I like the ending of that. It's really exciting. And it's always their closer. They always yeah. close that song in live. Um, so you saw that with the cannons, I'm yeah, sure. It's, it's stupid. It's, it's like, funny. There's another post podcast I love uh, from Slate called Hit Parade. And they did a whole episode called the ACDC Rule about albums that were number one because the previous album was massive. So the Back in Black wasn't number one, but For Those About to Rock was number one. And there's tons of examples of this throughout history. And they kind of call it the ACDC rule because this is the best example because Back in Black, only one album is bigger than it, mm. <laughs> you know? And, um, but the band got really sick of Lang working with Lang. He got more and more meticulous. And, you know, when I, I as I said, this is a really disappointing follow-up to Back in Black. Not much of it stands out really. And God, the album cover, it's almost like a puke color. Yeah. I mean, it's like this stupid canon. I mean, it's just, uh, they could have done a lot better. They followed that up with a uh, flick of the switch in August, 1983. It was self-produced and it was viewed as a disappointment. Even Kerrang magazine at the time said it was a disappointment. Oh, um, Kerrang says that then. The well, <laughs> you know, if you listen to it, you can see what they're talking about. I don't think it's that much worse. I think for those about the rocks better, but I don't That's think it's what, by uh, that much. Arnold was reading when he made the girl George comment in the commando episode, I think was correct. Oh, he's reading Kerrang? I don't know. With boy George? Must have been. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> at any rate, uh, after this album, Phil Rudd was kicked out and he was replaced by Simon Wright on drums. Uh, Phil Rudd was kicked out for drug use, which we'll come to later. Uh, they took two years to follow this up. In June of 1985, they released Fly on the Wall. Again, self-produced, but much more of a big 80s sound. This uh, contains that classic I mentioned, Sink the Pink. Um, not really memorable. Both of these albums I, I are like... I don't know. I, it's growing on me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. So dumb. So dumb. Sink the pink. Like, at least with Shoot to Thrill, there's a metaphor. What's the metaphor with Sink the Pink? Nothing. Well, um, I, I mean, it literally is a spinal, uh, spinal tap ripoff, right? Pink Torpedo is like right. right in Big Bottom, right? Anyway, I, it's still funny to me. But that's so, you know. so they kind of had, they were kind of down on the dumps here in the 80s. And they, you know, their albums were platinum because they're ACDC. But, you know, uh, that's real disappointment coming down from Back in Black. So they kind of had a minor comeback in the late 80s with Who Made Who, which was basically a soundtrack 
for the Mac, the really bad Stephen King directed movie, Maximum Overdrive. If you've ever seen that, we'll probably do it someday. Um, at any rate, uh, they released a re-released a bunch of songs, and they had this really catchy song called "Who Made Who." I love this song. It's just a pop song, though. It's not even rock. Um, with a great video. Uh, who made who? Probably who the first time who? they actually had a good video. Their videos are pretty bad. Um, mostly concert, boring concert videos. Uh, they released the next album, Blow Up Your Video, a couple years later in um, 1988. A little bit of a comeback, and it was produced by Vanda and Young again. Uh, had a minor kind of radio hit, Heat Seeker. Not bad, but the rest of the album's pretty dull. Um, at this point, Chris Slade replaced Simon Wright on drums. 1990, major comeback, Razor's Edge, five times platinum, Thunderstruck, Money Talks became their biggest selling single ever. Uh, number 23. I think really? I, I like it. I, I like, like it. it. Yeah, it's silly, but I, I, I just think it's kind of, it's almost like a bubblegum, like glam rock song. It's, it's, you know, I don't know. I it's like, like it. They're very, like, I don't know. It's maybe because of the same title, but Big Money by Rush. I'm not a fan of that either. Yeah. It's kind of the same. No, they're very different songs, but I know, maybe but it's the same time. Hate them for the same reason, the production. Yeah. It's that slick Bon Jovi-esque production, Bruce Fairborn. Yeah. Um, ACDC Live 1992 followed up, then Ball Breaker, uh, you know, Rick Rubin, Phil Phil Rudd is back on drums. All these albums sold pretty well. Um, all all the th- Ball Breaker songs I saw live were boring. I couldn't tell one from the other. Yeah, I think all these albums are boring. And again, his voice is just hard to listen to. Stiff Upper Lip was more of a kind of bluesy record uh, released in 2000, produced by George Young. Uh, you know, 2003, they're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, interestingly, they didn't make an album for a while, but they came out with Black Ice in 2008. And they did this thing where they released it only in Walmart. So no iTunes or nothing. Um, It's all available on streaming now. But this album sold 2 million copies, which for 2008 is pretty fucking good. Um, That was produced by Brandon O'Brien, who is their producer to this day. Uh, Rock or Bust followed in 2014. These albums are pretty much by the book ACDC. Uh, if that's what you want to hear, they're there, although I just can't deal with the singing. Um, now, in 2015, Phil Rudd was replaced. Now, I always thought Phil Rudd was kind of the most boring member of the band, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, he was charged with temp- attempted murder, threatening to kill, possession of meth and weed. Mm. And this is a guy who's like 65 years old. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is fucking crazy, dude. Um you think these guys are just like, oh, they're resting on their laurels, you know, just collecting the paycheck. But this guy's got some serious problems. Um, so he was replaced uh, with, again, with um, Chris Slade. Uh, 2016, Brian Johnson developed hearing issues. They were all from his race car driving. He forgot to wear earplugs inside driving a, a race car and he blew out his eardrum. And this caused further complications that kind of showed up in a tour of Canada. It was really cold and his, his ear got plugged up and then he just couldn't hear. And he was getting hearing damage every time he tried to play. He couldn't wear headphones for the monitor. Uh, he couldn't hear in one ear and he lost some percentage of hearing in the other ear. Oh, uh, so, so in mid tour, they replaced him with Axl Rose. Now I forgot to mention that in 20, uh, also, uh, in 2014, Malcolm Young had developed lung cancer and was starting to show signs of early onset dementia. And he was replaced by their nephew, Stevie Young, uh, on rhythm guitar. Uh, he just stopped touring. Uh, and I think he also stopped recording as well. Um, and then Cliff Williams quit in 2016 because without Brian Johnson, he just didn't feel like it was the band. It was too different. 
Um, now, Malcolm Young would die in November of 2017. But interestingly enough, Johnson, uh, you know, met this ear doctor who was, you know, creating these really advanced hearing aids and he was able to get his hearing back. He rejoined the band and so did Williams and Rudd. So now mm. they're back to the classic lineup, except for Malcolm Young. And they recorded an album in 2020 called Power Up. A lot of people thought this was a huge comeback. I think Brian Johnson's voice still sounds strange. Like maybe they did something to it. Um, it sounds a little better than the previous albums, so it's kind of suspect. But you know, I yeah, I don't have much use for these albums. I'm glad ACDC is still plugging away, but um, you know, whatever. So this kind of gets to the point in my evaluation of you know all the there's all these albums with Brian Johnson after. And when you compare Brian Johnson and Bon Scott, I would say I love Back in Black. But if I had to name my top seven albums, six of them would be Bon Scott albums. Yeah. It's only till you get through all of the Bon Scott catalog. You know, maybe the first I would just include the international releases. I wouldn't include the Australian ones. It gets too confusing. I would say the debut album's kind of weak. Maybe maybe Razor's Edge or For Those About to Rock's a little better, but I would say of all the international releases of Bon Scott, they tower over all of the Brian Johnson albums except for this one. So one thing that I always wonder is why, why what makes a good ACDC song versus a, a bad one? They're kind of doing the same shit, right? They have the same kind of way of recording. And, you know, you can't say it's Mutt Lang because Powerage isn't Mutt Lang. You know, uh, It's a Long Way to the Top isn't Mutt Lang. Um, you know, and even there's some good songs like Thunderstruck, I think is pretty good. Uh, and it's not Mutt Lang. So what, what is it? You know, it's like, it's almost like magic. It's almost random. And why can't other bands, you know, there are other bands that play this kind of bare bones rock and roll, yet they're not this good. You know, it's like, what is it that makes a magical ACDC song work? It's still kind of a mystery to me. Um, you know, it's just the magic of like Highway to Hell, those three chords or, that riff and back and black, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me. So why is back in black better? I'm going to first talk about why I think highway to hell is better. Um, I, I think that highway to hell is better. It's funny. I listened to these with my wife. Like I played highway to hell all the way through, put on back in black right after and I noted that Jeff in his notes, because Jeff's always more on top of stuff than me, he had already said like, okay, this is super raw. And that's the first thing my wife said. She said, I like Highway to Hell better because I think it's more raw. I think there's something more raw about it. Um, and there's something less polished about it. Although what's weird to me is I don't think of Back in Black as being too polished. Like I think it, it being polished enough, but I can kind of see where it's bigger. It's almost more arena. and it loses some of that kind of, you know, uh, back alley blues kind of thing yeah. that Highway to Hell still has. You know, it's like looser in a good way, you know, and I, I think that could be a, um, a point in its favor. So um, that's one reason, right? Of course, the main reason is Bon Scott himself, right? Bon Scott, maybe the greatest pure rock and roll singer in history, hard to argue with. He's technically good, but he's also got this character that Jeff talked about where he just doesn't sound like anybody else. And he sounds more kind of feral and evil, yeah. wild. Uh, it's everything you want a rock singer to be. And I don't think many people, I mean, there's obviously these virtuosos, like we talked about Pat Benatar, but this is a different side of it. 
you know, or, or and I Freddie think Mercury or something or like Freddie that. Mercury, or, you know, this is a different side of it. There's an, he's got the edge. He's got the nastiness. He's, you know, something like dirty deeds. He's almost like a troll or like yeah. fucking Gollum. You know, yeah, he's just like this sure. uh, fucking sewer dwelling creature. And I think Brian Johnson manages to come up with something that's different, but also matches him on back in black. But Johnson is only good on this record. Really? I mean, he sings okay on some of the other songs, but it's like he's amazing on this record and solid on the others. Whereas Bon Scott is amazing on everything he ever did. Even back to that debut album, Baby Please Don't Go, he's amazing already, right? So I mentioned that of the top ACDC albums, I'm much more of a Bon Scott fan. If, if it's Bon Scott versus Brian Johnson, Bon Scott wins. Yeah. But just this one album, right? I'm going to come to that. Now, the other thing, as I mentioned, he's kind of like a poet. He's he's he his lyrics are basic, but they're like even like a long way to the top or Night Prowler. He, he gives you li- like a story you can visualize, like you can picture everything he's saying. It's so vivid and the word choice is perfect. Um, and like I said, Brian Johnson sank the pink. I'm going to say it again. Uh, you know, <laughs> he just recover you in oil. It's when he tries to get sexy. It's it, you know the what the analogy is. It's like what Sammy tries to get sexy in Van Halen as opposed to David Lee Roth. Like David Lee Roth can pull off those lyrics. Yeah. But Sammy, when he does like uh, summer nights and shit, it's like embarrassing. And I feel that way for Brian Johnson, except for some of the points on this album. But even like giving the dog a bone is embarrassing or, you know, <laughs> cut your cake with my knife is embarrassing. Right. <laughs> She's using her head again. Yeah. I think I think Bon Scott's lyrics tower. The other thing is a lot of what Back in Black does well, it, how Highway to Hell did first, right? Uh, almost all the innovations, not all of them, that are on Back in Black are already there on Highway to Hell. Uh, you know, I talked about how Shake a Leg really borrows a lot from the whole feeling and tempo of beating around the bush. Yeah. Um, even though I think Brian Johnson does something else that's just as good as what Bon Scott does there. Um, and then, of course... Uh, there is the burnout factor, right? I've heard Highway to Hell tracks less uh, than than Back in Black because they aren't they just aren't played as much. Even though Highway to Hell itself is played a lot, maybe Girls Got Rhythm uh, is played. You know, other songs are played on the radio, but not to the frequency of You Shook Me All Night Long, Back in Black, Hell's Bells, right? Um, those are played way more. I, um, I just want to mention that, like to me, that's the biggest strike against Back in Black. To me, it's like. Yes, I I could listen like Hell's Bells. I love that song. Back in Black, the song you mentioned, I love it too. But I don't know if I really. I listened to this album a couple times in preparation for the show, and I was like, yeah, I don't need to listen to this for another ten years. I've heard every song on Back in Black so many times that it's in my head. I don't need to ever hear it again, almost. So. Right. Okay. Why I think Back in Black ultimately wins here. Um, it's a nail biter, but to me, a few things. One is it's bigger. I think that Back in Black has an intensity that is consistent throughout the album, even on the slower tracks, because I think Mutt Lang really refined his, his, his production here. And I think the band really understood how to work with him perfectly. For some reason, if they fell off on For Those About to Rock, maybe it was the challenge of having to fo- uh, follow this album. Maybe it was just the momentum they had. They had something to prove. Um, and they just did it quick and they 
they they just had momentum. They were ready to break out. They were ready to break out even bigger than they had. It's hard to say. Maybe Bon Scott possessed them and gave them some magical powers. I have no idea. But this album, it has the perfect rock and roll sound. And I think that's why it's resonated with people. I also think it resonated with people because anything they would have released at this time would have been huge. I just wonder if it would have been as huge without these ingredients. Um, now, and and the title track, obviously, if it's my favorite song, it's on this album, right? Um, you know, I go back and forth as to my favorite album, but I don't really change my favorite song. Uh, it, it's always there. Um, now, the other thing is the whole Rocky story around this album. I mean, you have Brian Johnson down on his luck, you know, trying to pay off a mortgage, working a, a tough day job, uh, you know, uh, gigging in a bar band at night when he was once a top 10 artist. It's really like, Sylvester Stallone and Rocky, and he gets drafted this once in a lifetime chance. I mean, people talk about Rockstar and the whole Ripper Owens story of Judas Priest. That's nothing compared to this because Ripper Owens and Judas Priest didn't make any good albums or albums that resonated with people. Brian Johnson came from nowhere and made an album with ACDC that is the second biggest selling album of all time. That's there is true. no more Rocky story than that. So to me, it's hard to divorce that from the, my feelings about the album. I also think that the eulogy, the whole idea that they did this unique dedication to Bon Scott that is reverent, but is also um, is also in the spirit of what Bon Scott would appreciate, right? It's it's reverent and irreverent at the same time. And I think as part of the comeback story too, think about what it must've been like to be ACDC. You're on the, you break in the US, you start selling platinum records, you start selling out stadiums, you start uh, touring, and then it's all, the rugs pulled from under you when you're just in your early twenties. I mean, that must be like for Angus, he was like 24, you know, that must be crazy uh, to have felt that. And it must've been equally hard for them to go on without bond, you know, because they, he made them right. When they had Dave Evans, they were nothing and they would have been nothing when they got bond Scott, that was the magic ingredient and they made great music with him. But I also feel like, they felt like they had something to prove, like they could do it. And they also were like, let's do it for Bond kind of thing. So it, it's really kind of moving. Um, and Brian Johnson delivers, you know, he he hits the top of his vocal range. Maybe I almost think he might've busted some of his vocal cords doing this album because he never really sounded as good, even though for those, he's not, he's not quite bad yet. But as you go further on in his career, his voice just isn't as good. And I almost wonder if he just gave it his all. This is just one thing. And you got to love that, right? Now, I think songs for song, I think Back in Black just edges it out, even though it might be that Back, that back in Black has lower lows. Like, give, I don't think there's anything as bad as giving the dog a bone on Highway to Hell, even Love Hungry Man. But I think also the standouts are bigger. I mean, obviously, Highway to Hell, the title track is like, God, an all-time great song. It's hard to beat. But then you have, on this album, you have three or four songs that I think are up there with it. Um, now, the other thing is, of course, the legacy, right? Back in Black is popular on a, on a massive scale, and you can't really call it a sellout. Like, you, you could have opinions about something like Hysteria as being kind of a sellout, even though I think Hysteria is an interesting album, and what they tried to do was interesting. It's so not hard. It's so pop. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's like, pop album for sure. it's a pop album. This is not a pop album, except for maybe you shook me all night long, but even that's a pretty heavy song. Yeah, I agree. And then some of the song, some of the album is as heavy as they ever got hell's bells, you know, yeah. um, 
uh, really heavy, black, right? Too. Back in it's, black, yeah. right? Shake a leg is is up there, although beating around the bush is just as heavy, you know. Um, and I just wonder what the what a what it is about this album that people still go to. I think there's a consistency to it. As I mentioned, even the tracks that I don't like as much, they they have a momentum that just keeps going right until the end of those slow songs in the album. Um, and yeah, like I mentioned, it still has a legacy. So though, those are its point in its favor, but again, it's just barely, and I could flip flop any time because I love Bon Scott. And like, like Jeff said, Bon Scott, Bon Scott, whether he, whether Powerage or Highway to Hell is better or whether some of the other songs like Whole Lot of Rosie are as good as what's on Highway to Hell, his voice never sound better than Highway to Hell. Like his work with Mutt Lang that Jeff talked about, I mean, he was at his peak. And if he's the greatest rock singer, then shouldn't that be the greatest album? It's kind of a tough one because I think Brian Johnson really, you know, uh, you know, he really delivers here. So that's sort of my, my whole thing, my thesis. That's, I'm going to wrap it up with that. Okay, well, I promised a special guest, you know, to, to weigh in here, and that special guest is uh, Chat GPT. So, at the point when we're recording this, uh, if you're listening to this in the future, um, we're in a crazy uh, hype cycle right now with uh, Chat GPT, and the version four is out and playing around with it. Um, the details. Yeah, just of- to let you guys know, sorry, Chat GPT isn't president while we're recording this, so I think maybe some things have changed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, that's right. So uh, we we welcome our new AI overlords uh, yeah. on uh, CFX. But uh, so anyway, uh, we're here in the beginning of April 2023 recording this. But to, so we asked uh, Chat GPT what they think is a better album, Highway to Hell or Back in Black. And here's the answer: uh, it, they, whatever pronoun. Yeah. Uh, we're not sure. Uh, we're, we're not sure about pronouns in general anymore. But anyway. It says, both Highway to Hell and Back in Black are considered to be classic albums in the rock genre and both have a significant impact on music history. Mm, okay. Ultimately, which album is better is subjective and depends on personal preference. Yeah, nice. Uh, Highway to Hell was released in 1979, was the last album to feature the band's original lead singer, Bon Scott, before his untimely death. The album features some of the band's most well-known songs, including the title track, Girls Got Rhythm and Touch Too Much. The album has a raw, energetic sound that made it a favorite among, among rock fans. Okay. Uh, Back in Black, released in 1980, was the band's first album with new lead singer Brian Johnson following the death of Bon Scott. The album features some of the band's most popular songs, including Hell's Bells, You Shook Me All Night, Long, All Night Long, and the title track Back in Black. The album has a polished sound and is often cited as one of the greatest hard rock albums of all time. Both albums have their own unique qualities and ultimately comes down to a personal preference. However, Back in Black is often regarded as ACDC's signature album and has a greater cultural impact making it a popular choice among fans and critics alike. So there you go. Uh, that is what chat GPT president, well, sorry, chat yeah, GPT. I, I think so. that's a, a, a robotic cop-out if there ever was one. I, I think, you know, it's agree. obviously just a sum, a summary of, uh, of stuff. And it, I, I would say it would be better if AI would actually have an opinion yeah. uh, as opposed to, as opposed to, uh, you know, just summarizing the general consensus, which is what it does. Yeah, that is and the general consensus can be wrong, right? That's As right. Jeff Jeff thinks it's wrong. So I, I do think yeah. I do think it's wrong, although you know, barely. I love back and yeah. back too. So anyway, on that note, um, we will leave you here. Uh this is Jeff. That is Slip, and we're gonna play you out with a little of uh what I think now is our new favorite ACDC song, Sink the Pink. 
So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> dude, that was nice. You fucking drilled, brought that up. Let's catch, do it. Catch you next time. Uh, at, and for our next episode, will also be fun. So, catch you later. <laughs>